Does a baseball game ever really come down to who wants it more? We'll talk about that and more with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September 23rd. It's show number 45, our final show for the 2016 Fantasy Baseball regular season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday show for you to wrap things up. We'll talk with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated about the will to win, about pitch framing and the strike zone, about the Orioles' strange adherence to the Seventh Commandment, some player picks and pans for 2017, and a whole bunch more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at 2017 breakout candidates like Eduardo Nunez, Luke Weaver, the Phillies' closers, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson will be looking at Gary Sanchez, Todd Frazier, Jorge Polanco, and others. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at last-ditch pickups in Oakland and San Diego. In our frequent flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Milwaukee third baseman Hernan Perez and St. Louis starter Luke Weaver. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Greg Fishwick looks at four weekend matchups, including an interleague battle of possible 2017 breakouts, as Arizona left-hander Robbie Ray visits Baltimore to face right-hander Kevin Gosman. And in a special edition of Master Notes, Lore Michaels of MastersBall.com says goodbye to an old friend. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? One week left to go? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League and leading off, it's our National League report and for the last time this regular season, our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Last time. Thank you, Patrick. It's good to have you for this last show of the season, Nick, of course, as always. I wanted to ask you, I wonder if you're like me, that watching the playoffs, while it's interesting and everything, it's a little different without a fantasy team, uh, an interest to cheer for. No, I think that's true. You know, you, you, get, you get wound down and then it's, uh, it's more difficult to follow. And of course, we do have a week left to cheer for our teams and to start looking ahead to 2017. And Nick, uh, let's look at some players this year and assess their value for 2017 as breakout candidates or as follow-up candidates. And one of the guys I'd like to talk about is Eduardo Nunez, the third baseman in San Francisco. Ryan Bloomfield covered Nunez's big breakout year this year in facts and flukes. And I guess the question is, how much of this terrific season of Eduardo Nunez can we count on as we look ahead to next year? Yeah, you know, Eduardo Nunez has, has flashed some uh, some interesting skills in his earlier years, but this is the first year he's gotten full-time at-bats, 521 at-bats, and uh, wound up with uh, 15 home runs, 37 stolen bases, uh, 288 batting average, certainly the kind of thing that, that can really help you. And so the question is, is you know, is this something that we can expect to happen again again next year? Um, if you look back over at Nunez's, Nunez's record, he's always had those kind of skills, decent speed, 
uh, hasn't, hasn't run perhaps as much as he did this year, but he certainly had the speed there before. Uh, decent power, um, improved against lefties this season. Lefties have been a problem for him and really improved against left-handed bats this season. Uh, probably this year, 521 at-bats is probably going to be his peak. I mean, we're looking at a guy who's uh, uh, age 29 and, and probably hitting his peak, certainly physically. Uh, but most of that breakout, uh, he concludes, is, is the result of increased playing time. And so if he gets that playing time, which he should in his current, in his current situation, he might produce another season very similar to this one. I thought so too, and at the same time, I'm a little concerned about some of the outside the speed metrics, which I think are fantastic. Uh, even this year, his his speed rate, which is a, a estimate of of how applicable his speed is to uh, fantasy baseball, 163, so fully two thirds better than the than the league average. He he runs at a 34 percent rate given the opportunity. Those are excellent numbers, and at age 29, he's certainly not too old to maintain that kind of speed. My concerns fall more on the other parts of the offensive game. His hard contact index is and usually has been under the league average, which means he's kind of slapping the ball around. 16 home runs this year looks to me like the most vulnerable of his productive stats. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. If you look at his power index, the uh, power index is only 83, and that would seem to make that that vulnerable. But, but looking at expected power index, that climbed again this year. Only 67 a year ago. XPX is up to 86 this year. So showing some improvement there. The other thing that could be a bit vulnerable is that that fly ball rate was up 7% this year, and you don't know if he can maintain that without uh, without doing strange things that suddenly find him trying to loft the ball too much. It's one of those glass half full, glass half empty type of things, isn't it? He's, you see his fly ball rate uh, shoots up by seven points, and you think, well, that's a step in the right direction. And then the question is, is it a fluke or is it for real? And that, of course, is always the question about any of this kind of thing. Could he even boost it next year? He's had, uh, over the last little while, uh, over 40% fly balls. And even though his fly ball home run per fly ball rate is relatively low, if he keeps hitting some more fly balls, does that mean more home runs? And conversely, if he keeps hitting more fly balls, does that affect his batting average? Because we know fly balls are a little harder to get hits on if, uh, if they're not hit well. Right. I mean, those things are always things that have to be have to be kept in balance, and and you find guys trying to make minor adjustments sometimes that aren't good in order to uh, to hit more fly balls, to uh, to get more power, those sorts of things. And so you don't know if uh, having had a, a what really a, a career season for him at this year, uh, if he's going to try to do something to make that repeat. If in fact that shouldn't be repeating. So let's assume that you can't get uh, Eduardo Nunez through uh, the waiver channel or by by acquiring him at this late date for next year. So you're going into the auction next year. You're going into the draft next year. Eduardo Nunez in 2016 has amassed a $31 season in 5x5 five five, thanks to those stolen bases. And you mentioned the 16 home runs. Can you imagine bidding $31 for Eduardo Nunez next year at your draft? No, definitely not. And I think most... Uh you know, I, I think what you do at that point is you talk up regression, and uh, certainly a regression is something that would be expected with Eduardo Nunez, but you might get him for $20 uh, or just under that, and that might be a bargain. Yeah, I suspect somebody's going to go over 20 bucks. It depends on the league, and it depends on how aware guys are at the draft table, but a lot of people tend to look at the most previous year and say, oh, he was $30 last year, $27 would be a bargain, and I don't think it's going to be a bargain at 27 no, I would agree with you. I don't think so either. I think there's going to be some regression there very, very definitely. 
Over in Philadelphia, Aaron Althair uh, started off, uh, finished off 2015, I should say, looking very, very solid, and he was expected to be really important in 2016. Then he got a wrist injury in early March. He had to have some surgery. He was out till July. He came back. Looked pretty good uh, in his rehab stat stint, but uh, so far this year struggled at the plate in the real uh, in the real league. What's the problem here with Aaron Althea of Philadelphia? Aaron Althea is simply striking out way too much at this point. A 65% contact rate down full 10% from a year ago, and uh, chasing pitches out of the strike zone. The, the and, and and things are just getting worse. His last 42 at bats, 21 strikeouts. Uh, so he's clearly pressing and. Uh, so I don't think Aaron Althea is a guy you count on at this point. There are some good skills there. Uh, that's something that you uh, uh, that you could get excited about. But if he's going to strike out this much, he's got to show me something more than that because he's a huge batting average risk at this point. I was looking at his stats, and I thought the same thing. For a guy who has this kind of high strikeout problem, he doesn't have a lot of power. And usually we're willing to look the other way on the contact rate uh, if the guy's putting the ball in play with a great deal of gusto. And here we have, uh, so far this year, was 76 hard contact index, so he's 25% below league average on power at the same time as he's well below league average on making contact at barely over 60%, and he's had weeks where it was under 50%. So in a lot of ways, uh, Aaron Althea looks like a very problematic guy, although, Nick, we have to give a little credit for some stolen base ability. Well, we do. I mean, there's there's some decent speed there and some possible, some potential stolen base ability, but, you know, at this point, he's going to wind up this season hitting below the Mendoza line most likely, and uh, that's not something I think you want to take a risk on uh, with these kinds of skills heading into next season. On the other hand, he does walk a fair amount, which is a something that's a, a bit useful. Uh, we've had Baseball HQ research, of course, that says base uh, getting bases on balls is not a predictor of batting average, but it is a predictor for increased power. Plus, of course, it helps you if you get on base. You, if you're a stolen base guy, then uh, you're you're in position to get a bag. He's got uh, six bags so far this year and 180 at-bats or so. If you prorate that out, that's 20-plus stolen bases. And given the stolen base environment in Major League Baseball, that ain't nothing no that's certainly that's certainly worthwhile if he's in the lineup uh, enough to uh, produce that many stolen bases but of course the batting average and the low uh, uh on base percentage is a little bit better than batting average with that walk rate but even then uh, the question is whether he, he maintains a lineup spot uh enough to actually pick up those stolen bases that's an excellent point. You can't steal first, especially if you're sitting on the bench. Uh, over in staying in Philadelphia now, uh, their bullpen kind of solidified in an unexpected way in 2016 with John Mark Gomez basically shocking most of us by hanging on to that closer job for the whole season. But there's a lot of reasons to suggest maybe that's not going to be the case in 2017, and maybe that job is a little more open than you'd think it would be given how well John Mark Gomez handled it this year. Yeah, you know, you look at you look at John Margomez and you look at what he did. He he certainly has done fine this season, but over the first half of, of the season, two point seven five ERA, but only a seventy one BPV. And behind that that wonderful ERA was a uh, very lucky hit rate, a, uh, a strand rate that was pushing toward the high end of four point oh two xERA. And so you look at the second half of the season, and suddenly the ERA is up to six point four three for the second half. Uh, Without a whole lot of change in those, uh, the, what's changed are those 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 luck metrics. Hit rate is up to 38 percent. Strand rate is down to 63 percent. So the regression that we would expect it is certainly there. What you've got is really a 4.0 uh, ERA pitcher, 
Uh, and that's probably what we should expect from Jamar Gomez going into the next season. And the question has to be, is that really going to be enough to keep the closer job, given that there are some better options in the uh, Philadelphia bullpen? And one of those options I know is Hector Neris. Uh, we talked about him earlier this season. Uh, Matt Cedarholm covered him, I think, in early May and asked the question, is this guy for real? Because he was pitching fantastically well. And uh, at the time, Matt Cedarholm said, this guy is for real. He seems to have all the skills you need. And there's another guy, a, a young guy called Edubre Ramos, who's also come in and showed some pretty decent skills as well. So it looks like John Mar Gomez may be the third choice in a three-man race, on the basis of skills at least. Yeah, he might be. I mean, I mean, uh, Hector Neris has certainly maintained those skills that we looked at early in the year. Uh, currently a 2.44 ERA, a 144 BPV, excellent dominance rate, striking out more than 11 guys per nine innings, uh, good control. So certainly has, has uh, yes, he, he is as good as he looked early in the season. He's maintained that throughout the season, and my guess is that he'll be real competition for Jean-Marc Gomez in, uh, as, as we go into spring training. And then you look at, uh, uh, at Edubre Ramos, who came up uh, in the middle of the year, and he's pitched very, very well. Uh, you know, 42 games, a 110 BPV, not quite on the level of, of uh, Neris, perhaps, but uh, certainly enough that you would want to, in, if you're taking a look at, a, at, say, an open spot in the spring, you're going to look at this guy and see how he does in spring training. Getting back to uh, Hector Neris, the one sort of thing that nags at the back of my mind is the last month he hasn't looked really solid, and especially he's been having a lot of trouble with walks. Over the past 31 days, and we tracked this at BaseballHQ.com and presented as part of the player record, over the last 31 days, Nick, 6.2 walks per nine innings. Six walks per nine innings. That's an enormous amount of walks, and leaving aside the damage that it can do to your ERA and, of course, to your whip, but... A manager's only going to look at a guy walking this many guys so long and say, I can't rely on this guy in any kind of pressure situation. I can't bring this guy in with uh, two runners on and one out because uh, before I know it, he's going to walk in, two, you know, walk in a run, and then, and then if he gives up a hit, it's two more. That very high walk rate, I know it's a very short run. It's 13 innings over 13 games, small sample size and all of that, but 6.2 walks per nine innings seems to me to be a red flag. It is a red flag, certainly, but you know, at this point in the season, when he's done consistently well uh, throughout the year, and, and this is the kind of thing you have over the, over uh, September and, and just a few games, you begin to wonder: Has this guy just thrown too many innings for the season? Is he tired at this point? Uh, you know, what's really going on here? And maybe he'll settle down and and be right back in the uh, in the swing of things in the spring. It's certainly something as a manager you would be aware of and look out and look for, but uh, as a uh, as someone looking at the record, it's not something I would worry about if he can turn that around in spring training. Well, for me, anytime I see a sudden spike in in the walk rate, and this is a spike, his overall uh, walk rate for the year control rate is 3.1, but given that a lot of it is back-ended, like before, before uh, in the early part of the year it was down below 2, and now all of a sudden it's up over 3 because of this spike in the second half, and especially lately, I'm a little concerned about injury, Nick, because we know that one of the signs of elbow problems is a sudden loss of control, and that's what this looks like to me, so... Uh, um, even if he gets through the season and, and survives and gets into spring training, I'm going to keep in the back of my mind the possibility that there's some kind of health issue here. Elbow problems tend not to go away. They tend to be structural and they tend to be long-term. So I'm just going to put that in the back of my mind. Yeah, I think so. I think you have to do that. And if you're, 
if you're Philadelphia and, and uh, you, would, you would hope that the medical staff is going to look at that number and actually look at the elbow and see if there's something going on because clearly it's not something at this point that Hector Neris is complaining about. It's not something he's uh, indicating that he's got a problem with. But you're right. That one number does suggest there could be something going on that's uh, of an injury nature. And finally, Nick, looking ahead to 2017, Stephen Nickrand, the starting pitcher buyer's guide columnist, had a column called 2017 Speculations. And that's a real interesting uh, column that Stephen does at the end of each year for starting pitchers and for batters as well. And one of the pitchers that caught his eye among starters was in St. Louis, Luke Weaver. Is Luke Weaver a 2017 breakout candidate? Yeah, I kind of, I really like Luke Weaver. I, you know, I, I, he's a guy that uh, has done very well so far this season, but could do even better, I think, next year as you look at uh, at what Luke Weaver has has, has produced. And in eight starts, Luke Weaver is currently has a four point five four ERA, so nothing that's going to catch anyone's eye right away. But the guy is twenty two years old, a BPV of one thirty four, eleven strikeouts per nine innings, two point eight walks per nine innings. So uh, a lot of that earned run average is the result of. Uh, uh, of, uh, I think, really bad luck, uh, a, a high hit rate, a 39% hit rate, and one uh, 1. 1.5 uh, home runs per nine innings, so uh, a home run per fly rate of 19%, which is a little too high. So as those numbers start to come down, and they should, I think we're going to see some, uh, perhaps a, a real breakout season from Luke Weaver next year. Yeah, this looks like a pretty interesting skill set, especially that strikeout-walk combination. That's what you look for. And over the short run, and he's only had eight starts this season, that 39% hit rate that you mentioned, a 74% strand rate also, which is quite high and, of course, partly relates to that high home run rate. Uh, as he gets a bit stronger, as he gets a bit more experienced, I think we can expect a lot of those kind of bad luck outcomes to normalize and if they do normalize, then you're instead of a 450-150 type of line for ERA and WHIP, you might be looking at more like a 350-120 type of line. Still not entirely great, but well worth uh, having on your roster because it's something that maybe can build on, especially in keeper leagues. If you get him at the draft next year, you have him for his age 23, 24, 25 years. As he gets bigger, stronger, more experienced still, a lot of that stuff starts falling into place. You could really have yourself... I'm not going to promise an ace, but you could certainly have yourself a very useful fantasy starter. Yeah, the other thing to look at with a guy like Luke Weaver, who's when you're leading with eight starts, you're really dealing with a small sample size, and, and a single start can influence a lot of those, those overall numbers. And if you look back at Luke Weaver, the reason those numbers are so high right at the moment, a, a start in Colorado, two innings pitch, seven hits, six earned runs, that can blow numbers out of the water. In a uh, in a small sample, which is of course is is what it's done with Luke Weaver, right at this point. So his numbers are really much better than they look at uh, look like on the surface, I believe. And Coors Field can certainly do that to a pitcher. Very definitely. Okay, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out this week and for helping us out all season long with news from the National League. Uh, season ends now. I hope you have a terrific off season. I hope your leagues finish up well, and I'll talk to you again before too long. Thank you, Patrick. It's it's been fun. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has been our National League reporter here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. Good to be here. Good to have you as well, Jock. Uh, I want to talk about 2017, take a look ahead to next year. Pretty much too late to do anything about this year anyway. And I'd like to start with the Minnesota Twins, a very interesting team who disappointed this year, but who seem to have a lot of things in position to make a pretty good run of it next year. 
Well, I'm, I'm with you. I think the Twins are one of the most fascinating teams to watch this offseason because I just think they have a ton of young position player talent. Uh, they're probably going to have, well, they will have a new front office, uh, and there's going to be a lot of questions facing the new front office on where all these, uh, where all these guys are going to fit and where they're going to play. So I see Minnesota making a lot of moves this winter. Maybe the place to start for me, especially for fantasy purposes, Jock, is with Jorge Polanco, who might have been the reason the Twins felt comfortable trading Eduardo Nunez, their shortstop. Polanco's filled in at short pretty okay. He's been about a $5 player, 200 or so at bats. Just a couple of home runs, 20-ish RBIs and runs scored. Four steals, though, and a 288 batting average. If you spread that out, you're looking at maybe 50 runs, 50 RBIs. 10 stolen bases like that. He's probably a $10 player or so. Is he a guy to watch for us in 2017? Yeah, I think so. I own Polanco in one of my leagues, and, and I think he, he can actually improve a little bit on this. He's not an all-star, but he does everything a little bit uh, pretty well, uh, has, has good offensive skills across the board. Um, I even think he can hit double-digit uh, home runs and get double-digit steals in a, in a full season. Um, he, he's got good versatility. He's not a great defender at shortstops, which is where he, he's played this year. He has 20-game eligibility there because Minnesota didn't have one and they wanted to see how he'd play. The real question is, where is he going to play or is he going to become just a, a utility, a guy who plays you know, four or five times a week all over the diamond? So you think that he won't be playing regularly at shortstop next year? Yeah, I wonder because uh, Minnesota's uh, shortstop of the future is uh, um, Nick Gordon, and he's at least a year or two away. Um, I'm not sure Polanco is their shortstop of the future. They may give him another year, but I looked at his defensive numbers, and I wasn't particularly impressed. But as a placeholder for Gordon, as you say, uh, at the earliest, I think probably 2018, maybe partway through the season, he's still uh, a player in development. He's a good player and he has a great future, I think. But uh, yeah, I think Polanco could get enough uh, at-bats at the shortstop position next year, pending what else Minnesota might do in the offseason, that he could be useful without being great as a fantasy player. Yeah, that's my take too. Guys like Polanco are very useful, particularly if they qualify a number of positions, and I think there's a chance of that next year. Of course, they have Brian Dozier and and uh, ensconced at second base. Do you think there's any chance Minnesota deals Dozier to make room for Polanco and some other things? Because a career season, he's probably never going to have more value, and he's got a couple of years left at a relatively low price on his contract. By the time Minnesota becomes a truly competitive team, Brian Dozier will be a free agent and gone. Do they make that move now? Yeah, and this is one of the things that makes Minnesota interesting. Uh, Polanco is, by all accounts, um, a, a competent fielder at second base. It's his best position. Dozier is in the middle of a of a four-year, $20 million contract. He's owed $10 million over the next two years. That's pretty attractive, given what Dozier's done, and I wouldn't be surprised to see him out of Minnesota and Minnesota trying to get uh, better and younger uh, 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 before the winter's out. You know, it'd be good for them if they could say, okay, you can have Brian Dozier for two years at $5 million a year, but you got to take Maurer because Maurer's really the dead weight on that club insofar as trying to rebuild is concerned. Yeah, that's a real good point. There's lots of options there. And speaking of Maurer, after a lot of hype, Miguel Sano finally got 400 at-bats this year. And frankly, Jock, I think we agree he didn't do an awful lot with those 400 at-bats. Got the mid-20s home runs with the big swing. We were all expecting that. But he's going to finish short of 70 RBI. His 236 batting average is about where his plate skills suggest. 
Can Miguel Sano ever be a premium fantasy asset, and can he do it next year? I think he can be, but I think his floor got lowered uh, this year. To, to be fair, I mean, yeah, he has that contact problem. He also started the year in the outfield, and I don't think he was particularly happy or thrilled about uh, trying to make that adjustment. Uh, he wanted to pay, play third base. Uh, like like uh, we've mentioned here, he has the, the, the tough con con contact he's he's willing to take a walk it gives him good value in on base percentage leagues um he's never going to hit more than 250 260 uh the, the nice thing is his his power is freakish uh, i think he i think his power does rebound a little bit he actually showed good power in limited play this year um his his runs and rbis are going to be what also give him uh give him um uh, his value, and on a twin team that uh, didn't do a lot offensively until the second half, they have to reconfigure that to help him out. Now, Sano obviously still has a position problem. He's he's just okay at third, really, at best. Frankly, uh, he can't go to first base right now until the Twins move some uh, some players. Maybe he's a DH waiting to happen. Um, I still like him because of the power. Uh, and and if you look at uh, obviously Minnesota's uh, DH in corner and problems. Uh, besides Sano, they've got Byung-Ho Park, they've got Kenneth Vargas, they've got Maurer, as you mentioned, they got Trevor Plouffe. This new front office has a lot of challenges challenges ahead of it. And as far as Sano is concerned, uh, runs and RBIs are predicated on making contact. You can't score if you're not on base. You can't drive in a run by striking out. As long as he's around 60% contact rate, uh, Miguel Sano is going to find it very tough to drive in runs, and I think that's going to be a problem, even if the Twins start putting guys on base, which has been a team problem that has kept a lot of their players from generating a lot of RBIs. I think... Uh, uh, Dozier has more than 40 home runs, and I'd be surprised if he's anywhere near 100 RBIs. I, I'd be really surprised. I haven't checked recently. In the outfield, they have Eddie Rosario. And boy, isn't this guy something to watch, Jock? Sometimes he looks like all-world out there. Great throwing arm, tremendous range in the outfield. And then every so often he makes a bonehead play running the bases. He strikes out a lot as well. He, it's impossible to get him to draw a walk. What do we make of Eddie Rosario? Do we stick with him? Does Minnesota stick with him? What's the play here? Well, I, I think your column Rosario is, is absolutely right. He's really athletic. He's got good speed. He's got sneaky good power. Um, terrific defender. His biggest problem offensively is is pitch selection. He just swings at everything. He's got a 3% walk rate. Um, he... Uh, and he's boomer bust. Uh, when the hits are falling, um, he's he's going to hit two. He's going to hit over 300, like he did in the in the second half. If they're not falling, he's going to struggle, like he did in the first half, which got him sent down to the minors. Uh, I think, given his upside uh, and and the fact that he's cheap, Minnesota's going to stick with them. Um, he makes a pretty good speculative bet for 2017, in my opinion. Consider uh, his eight dollar season a, a floor, and if he ever gets a clue on what how to wait on pitches and maybe drive pitches a little bit better. He could do double that. I agree with you. I think Eddie Rosario has a bright future, and I'll be in on the bidding on him just because he's still pretty young, as you say. And uh, as he gets older and more mature, maybe he calms down, if nothing else, a little bit, starts realizing that to reach his potential, he has to approach this game as a mature player. And I think that could make all the difference. And by the way, uh, Dozier's up around 99 RBIs, so he looks like he will make 100, and I wanted to make sure people knew that. Uh, what about this Robbie Grossman, uh, kind of a career fourth outfielder? They brought him in to replace Byron Buxton, which I thought was a really disastrous move, but he looked okay. Robbie Grossman looked okay out there. Yeah, Grossman hit uh, 278 first half, 279 second half, uh, picked up a little over 300 at bats. His power metrics look good. 
problem with Grossman is he's 26, 27 right now. He's never showed any of this before. This was a year in which home runs were inflated, and he still only hit 11 home runs in 300-plus at-bats. He's got real good patience. His, uh, his contact isn't what we would like it to be, neither is his speed. This could have been Grossman's career year. Um, he's a guy I might bid on uh, next year if the bidding is at a buck or two bucks in hopes that he can repeat it, but I sure wouldn't be counting on it. I'll be watching Robbie Grossman pretty carefully in spring training to see what his uh, at-bat count is likely to be based on all the decisions they have to make in their outfield. And I agree with you. I think I play in an American League-only league, which increases the value of guys like Grossman if they get 300 at-bats, because I wouldn't mind paying a dollar to get 10 home runs, a 275 or 280 batting average, something along those lines, some decent counting stats, 40-50 RBIs, 40-50 runs. That would be fine with me. But I'm going to be very cautious because I think that there's going to be a lot of Byron Buxton at-bats next year and a lot of Eddie Rosario at-bats, and all of a sudden the playing time for Grossman doesn't look that uh, promising as a situation. Yeah, Grossman's hit rate, if you look at it, was like 34, 35, 36% all season long. And when you think about that kind of a hit rate without any speed, and he really doesn't have that, you expect that to go down. Uh, his hard contact rate was was below uh, average. It was like 93 uh, a 93 index, uh, his hard contact index. Um, so I don't expect him to do quite as well as he did this year. What does the rotation look like for the Twins? In a word, bad. In in three words, uh, bad, but maybe a little more promising than bad. Irvin Santana's been okay. He's reasonably priced. Uh, uh, if, if he's back, I, I, I firmly think that if Minnesota's looking toward the distant future, he may be on the trade market, particularly given uh, the pitching needs that a lot of contending teams are going to have next year. Phil Hughes will also be back. He'll eat innings uh, with uh, no walks, no Ks, and too many home runs. This rotation's going to live or die right now, at least, with three youngsters, Kyle Gibson, Tyler Duffy, and especially Jose Barrios, uh, um, all three showed flashes, but they were really inconsistent. Uh, uh, if they solidify with some age and experience, they could be decent fantasy speculative bets for 2017. I think that's right. I had Gibson and Duffy this year. I eventually traded Gibson. And I have to tell you, Jock, it was just a maddening experience. Duffy seemed to throw a PQS dominant start, then a zero. Then a PQS dominant start, then a zero. Then a couple of ones and twos, then a five, then a zero. It was just maddening. Gibson mostly clunkers. I think he had three PQS dominant starts over the entire season. They're end game bets for sure, and they might even be unrosterable in mixed leagues, but I don't mind Gibson and Duffy as speculative bets as you suggest, and I think Barrios, with a year under his belt, might be even better than speculative. Yeah, and and again, we're looking at uh, and this team uh, as there were in the position uh, in the position player spots. Lots of questions in the rotation, but there's a little bit of promise there. And is there any uh, any use of Brandon Kinsler, the closer? You know, um, his ERA is about three five, three six, but his DOM's less than six. He's struggling in September. He's just not the prototypical guy. He was put there because Minnesota needs somebody for the ninth inning. Uh, they have some options right now. None of them are good. Trevor May still, when he's healthy, um, I think he's got back problems right now. He still shows good velocity and good swing and miss capabilities, but uh, that's another area that Minnesota is going to have to address again come next spring. 
And it's an interesting sort of situation, too, because if Minnesota turns out to get their offense lined up and get some decent pitching, there could be some save opportunities there, and right now there's nobody to take them, so it makes a very interesting play for fantasy owners. Uh, I like Trevor May as well, if, but this back issue has me worried, but he's definitely got the stuff, a lot of swing and miss. Uh, Mike Shears also covers the White Sox in playing time tomorrow. They're better than Minnesota, but also they have a lot of question marks where they wanted exclamation points. Uh, I'm really curious about what you think about Brett Laurie and Todd Frazier. They're both arbitration eligible, and they're both, shall we say, imperfect players as infielders. What do you think about Brett Laurie and Todd Frazier for next year, and what about Tyler Saladino as a replacement for one or the other? Yeah, and and both of these players were somewhat disappointing. Obviously, uh, the Cubs uh, contracted uh, Lowry. They picked him up in hopes that uh, the cell would unlock his home run power. Um, it really didn't. He had about 12 home runs and three, 350 at-bats before he went down with more injuries. Um, Lowry, I'm almost ready to give up on from a fantasy standpoint. Um, Todd Frazier hit a lot of home runs, but uh, wow, that 221 batting average. Both are up for uh, arbitration. Uh, um, I, I don't think they're, they're both of them are going to be non-tendered. Tyler Saladino had an interesting year. Um, he had uh, good gains at the plate, uh, pitch, uh, good uh, pitch selection. Um, he's doubled his home run output, 19-point um, um, increase in uh, power index and an 8% jump in fly balls. He bumped his batting average from 225 uh, last year to 260 so far this year. Um, it's not skills-based, but it looks like at least some sort of a progression. So um, it's possible he could be at least playable. The, the The problem with the White Sox is they're they're position players. There's just there's just not enough star power here outside of Jose Abreu uh, to contend, and uh, and there's a lot of guys they have to make decisions on. What about Avisael Garcia? There was lots of uh, anticipation about Garcia coming and getting a lot of at-bats. He's got some natural ability. And uh, is Avisael Garcia, who seems to have played himself out of the White Sox lineup, have any chance of getting back in it? Well, since he came back from injury, they, they took him out of the DH job. They put him in the outfield, which is supposedly where he wanted to play. He's hit 275 with four home runs and 80 at-bats since, uh, since he left the, the DH uh, spot. But uh, he also began September going two for 19, uh, and this was against mostly Minnesota's pitching. So the verdict is still out on him. He's still young enough, and we talked about him a few few weeks ago. He hits way too many ground balls, and in those spurts where he doesn't hit ground balls, his fly ball, his home run fly ball percentage is actually very good. So if he could just loft the ball a little bit more, he might be capable of, of doing better than he has in the cell. Yeah, just a 695 OPS this year has to be really disappointing. I, I don't know what to make of him. If he sticks with the White Sox next year, I'm not even sure how to bid on him. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, exactly right. Uh, here's a guy, he's got, uh, he's got very good physical tools, but when you look at the results, they're disappointing. Now, they also signed David Robertson to close games in Chicago. They thought they were going to be in playoff contention. They thought a closer was kind of the missing piece. Turned out they had a lot more missing pieces than that. Uh, David Robertson is a established closer, but I have to say, Jock, this year, not too impressive. No, not at all. His walk rate ballooned from under uh, 2.0 per nine innings to almost five walks per nine. That's a big jump. Um, at the same time, his uh, strikeouts per nine sank from around 12 into the 10s. This is also the third year in a row for an ERA increase, and his whip was very unhealthy for a closer at over 1.4. 
Does that make room for Nate Jones? Yeah, Nate Jones had a terrific year. Uh, the, the problem Nate Jones has is Robertson's big contract, and obviously teams often decide these uh, roles based on dollars more than common sense. I like Jones as a Lima reliever who could force his way into the role if Robertson continues to stink. Yeah, I like Nate Jones too for exactly the same reason. little tough to draft a guy or auction for a guy in a mixed league who's not going to be more impactful as a relief pitcher, but in only leagues, uh, these kind of guys are, are just gold, especially if you think that there's a chance to get some some shots. And especially with the White Sox having the big dollar closer, uh, there's going to be a natural reluctance among fantasy owners to bid on him because they think Robertson's just going to block his way permanently. But, man, if Robertson doesn't uh, turn things around, as you suggest, uh, sooner or later they're going to have to do what they have to do. Uh, the Yankees are barely hanging on in the wild card hunt, Jock. They're not likely to make the playoffs when you consider the schedules of all the other c- competitors there. But they must be very pleased that they've been so competitive while in the midst of a fairly significant rebuild. I'll ask Joe Sheen about this later. He's a big Yankees guy. But where do you think the Yankees are going to be in 2017? Well, the Yankees were actually one of the fun stories because right after they sold off at the trade deadline and got rid of a lot of their 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 big guns. They went on a tear, and right now their offense is, has very looks very much improved. Obviously, Gary Sanchez is the big story there. Uh, his development at catcher has uh, enabled him to push uh, Brian McCann out to DH or even maybe out the door uh, down the road. Biggest question they have next year is in right field, whether some combination of Aaron Hicks and Aaron Judge can perform out there. Neither has done particularly well out at the uh, MLB uh, level this season. Uh, Judge needs to uh, to have better pitch selection and uh, somehow handle that low and outside pitch that he keeps offering at. Uh, another big if is whether Greg Bird can return from a torn labrum to adequately replace the outgoing Mark Teixeira at first base. And of course, adequately replacing Mark Teixeira doesn't sound like it's that tall of an order, but Teixeira sort of quietly, not a great season, but had some power. Uh, we managed a couple of years ago at first pitch, either two years ago or last year at first pitch Arizona, we saw both Aaron Judge and Greg Bird playing. And I remember at the time, a lot of people looking at Aaron Judge, he's a very tall guy. And a lot of them were, a lot of people were saying the swing is just way too long to, to be successful at the major league level. And it certainly worked out that way this year. Yeah, Judge has terrific power. He has decent patience and he's very athletic. But uh, MLB pitchers are going to find your weaknesses pretty quickly, and they found his. So uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, how long it will take Judge to adjust. And what about the pitching? Uh, This year it looked great, especially in the latter part of the games when they had that three-man bullpen that was just striking everybody out in sight. Two of those guys are gone, of course. But more importantly, what about the rotation? Well, that, that's the issue going forward. Uh, you've got Masahiro Tanaka, who's looked great and maybe on the fringes of Cy Young voting, but his elbow may be hanging on by a thread. In fact, he's going to miss uh, his next start due to a slight forearm strain. CC Sabathia's looked a little better at, at, uh, as of late, but he's barely replacement level. Uh, his 7.7 strikeouts per nine is not quite league average, and a, and a 4.14 ERA shouldn't send your finger flying to the bid button on your web auction software. You might want to bid the extra buck on Michael Pineda, who's actually pitched pretty well, but he's been snake bid all year. He's been one of the unluckiest pitchers in all of baseball, that's for sure, and he's demonstrated some pretty impressive skills growth. I think Michael Pineda 
on a on coming off of a fairly weak year as far as counting stats and when you just glance at the stats a lot of people are not going to be that interested but I think Michael Pineda could be a real breakthrough guy next year still leaves a few slots open and I know uh, Eovaldi's out all year with Tommy John who else is there well you yeah you've got uh, Eovaldi out that leaves uh, Louis Sessa Brian Mitchell Luis Severino maybe Chad Green is trying to rehab now from a strained flexor tendon that's always something to watch plus any free agents that they might spend a bunch of money on if they think they can compete in a still tough A at least. And if there's any pitchers left after this uh, hangover we're going to get from all the pitching injuries we've had this year. Boy, isn't that the truth. Uh, do you have a favorite amongst that seemingly motley crew? I still like Luis Severino. Even though he's struggled as a starter, uh, they put him in a bullpen right now, and in long relief, he's done very well. He's showing the swing and miss capability that he showed early on uh, last year. Um, still, his performance out of the pen uh, points to some upside in in uh, in that role. He's he's going to be pitching someplace, and I think he's going to be good. Sessa's been uh, uh, pretty decent. Uh, he's been home run prone, but still pretty good in his first couple of starts. I think Severino is a good choice, Jock, because he has looked terrific as a relief pitcher. Maybe once he gets a little more confident, a little more comfortable, realizing he can get guys out, then they transition him back to starting, and that could be really good for him. Finally, Jock, I know you cover the American League West for Playing Time Tomorrow, our column looking ahead at roster development. I'm particularly interested in two teams. You've got a playoff-caliber team in Houston and definitely a not-playoff-caliber team with the Oakland A's. Uh, Houston's probably going to miss the playoffs. In retrospect, how could this possibly have happened with all the talent they have, and how are they going to get back to the top? Well, Houston struggled from the get-go, and they, and they struggled in different ways. Their rotation, Lance McCullers was the only st- pitcher right now, the only ro- guy who's been in the rotation, who's had an ERA of less than 4.3. Obviously, uh, Dallas Keuchel struggled. He had some bad luck in the first half. He pitched a lot better in the second half. But, of course, he's now missed uh, the last five, six weeks with uh, with uh, arm problems. He's probably going to miss the rest of the year with arm problems. He's a red flag um, uh, McCullers himself has not pitched uh, in two months um, because of his own uh, shoulder woes. Um, this is a team that's going to have to figure out what they're going to do with their rotation going forward. Now, they have a bunch of uh, minor league talent that may not be ready yet. You've seen some of it already in Joe Musgrove, who's who's shown flashes, but he may be asked to learn on the fly next year. Um, you've got other names like Francis Martes, who's a... a, 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 a uh, high ceiling uh, minor leaguer with not a lot of high minors uh, exposure yet. Uh, got another guy, David Paulino, who's probably going to pitch some next year. He may not be ready till the All-Star break. Um, the rotation is a big question in Houston going forward. And the offense as well, although when you look around that offense, gosh, Jock, uh, you know, it seems at every position they're just loaded. Guys like Springer and Correa and Jose Altuve might be the best offensive player in the league. Uh, Bregman has looked very comfortable in his uh, early going despite his young age. Looks like they should be scoring about 10,000 runs a week, and, and yet they're not. And where's the problem there, and how are they going to fix it? Well, the reason they look now that they should be scoring about 10,000 runs a week is because of the ascent of guys like Bregman and Guriel, who've been very good, particularly Bregman, since they've come up. But they've only come up since late July and August. And before that, Houston's outfielder was underperforming, and it's still underperforming. 
Um, and, uh, and first base has been a real problem all year. Obviously, A.J. Reed is the first base in the future, but he's done absolutely nothing at the major league level. Um, we don't know how good he's going to be next year. They have some depth in Tyler White and, uh, dare I mention his name, John Singleton. Um, but none of those guys have, have really stepped up to own any major league at bats. Um, they have to figure out where Gurriel is going to play. He's a third baseman by trade. Um, he's been playing some first base, uh, some outfield, some D.H., um, they're going to have to find a spot for him. Wouldn't surprise uh, me at all to see him either in left field or at first base to begin next year. And really, that's an interesting position battle that we're going to have to watch closely during spring training because I can see them being comfortable putting an infield out there with Gurriel at first. Uh, of course, the middle infield of Correa and Altuve and then Bregman over at third where he looks very comfortable as a fielder. He's, of course, a shortstop by uh, by training and inclination. That's a very, very solid infield. But as you said, they got they got work to do in the outfield. Yeah, they really do. Uh, Jake Marisnik uh, is a really good defender. He can't hit worth a lick. Left field is still a question mark. They have George Springer in right field. Houston has some work to do this offseason. And finally, the hapless Oakland A's. They're not just further away from the playoffs than Houston. They're pretty much further away from the playoffs than everybody. And uh, even worse, it looks like they took a fairly significant step backwards this year. What do you see in the future for the A's from a baseball perspective and from a fantasy baseball perspective? Well, when you think about the way Oakland looks at the uh, the offseason and, and what they've done in recent years, uh, uh, it's interesting. I wrote a Playing Time Tomorrow piece just this past week about how they've never been reluctant to big offseason moves. And I see them uh, doing that again, particularly now that they're in rebuild mode. Um, severe rebuild mode. I think the only position players who appear to be relatively safe are Marcus Semien, the shortstop, and uh, newly promoted Ryan Healy. These guys have been productive and they're still in their pre-arb years. I expect the A's to try to cash in on Chris Davis's 40 home run year in an effort to add talent. They did the same thing with Josh Donaldson a few years ago. Um, with Danny Valencia also on the block, he's been on the block since uh, midseason, um, Oakland could very well have an entirely new starting outfield uh, and DH contingent on opening day. They were last in the AL in offense, so um, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for fantasy owners if they stay on top of this and see who's new in Oakland. Uh, Pitching-wise, Sonny Gray's lost season was obviously uh, part and parcel of DA's problems. Uh, he may be back. Then again, um, if somebody's that interested, he could also be gone. So uh, the A's are always fun to watch, given Billy Bean and that. I think Sonny Gray is the interesting chip here. Uh, if he ends up somewhere better, for one thing, it's going to enhance his fantasy value. Although when you look at his skills this year, not as good as they have been in years past. So it could be a situation where suppose they trade him to, I don't know, Boston or New York or you know Toronto or someplace where they can hit and where they've got good, uh, good bullpens and all that kind of stuff that the A's don't have. I still wonder if Sonny Gray is going to be as good a pitcher as a lot of us expect him to be. I wonder about injury problems. I wonder about a lot of things to do with Sonny Gray. Now the And the guy I'm really interested in this year, I signed him way back when as a reserve pick in AL Tout, and that's Sean Manea. And he had some trouble with uh, missing some time because of some arm trouble and some other injury issues, but they were fairly minor. And since he's come back, he's looked pretty solid. I like Sean Manea a lot. Uh, as you noted, the one problem I have with Sean Manea is throughout his career, he has had injury problems, and, and, and they've been... Uh, 
they've dogged him. So um, um, this this is the problem with pitching going forward. You've got a guy with all kinds of upside if he can stay healthy. But you're right, he's missed some time. Um, he hasn't thrown a lot of innings over the past over his three uh, professional years. And my take is, uh, even if he stays healthy next year, he'll be on a pitch count. I look for him only to pitch about 150, 160 innings next year. Which, of course, will hold down his strikeouts, although uh, even in the, that kind of limited play over the last couple of weeks, he's had a seven-inning outing with eight, stri- eight strikeouts. He's had a six-inning outing with seven strikeouts, five in five, and so forth. And he's a, he's a lot. he reminds me a lot of the guys we talked about earlier in Minnesota. Uh, a PQS4 followed by a zero. A PQS4 followed by a one. Two fives in a row followed by a couple of zeros. You know, it, it's, uh, it's young pitchers are inconsistent, and we know that. And uh, I think it's something we just have to live with. But sometimes if you get a guy at the right time, a guy like Manea or maybe even a guy like Tyler Duffy, they're figuring things out. They're pretty young. They're pretty inexperienced. But when they go out there and put up a PQS4 and another PQS4 and maybe a PQS5, they know or they've learned that they can compete at this level. And I think that's a really important thing for us to look at as we're considering where to place our speculative bets for a subsequent season. Yeah, and you're right, and particularly when you call them speculative bets, that you, you can't get around speculating on pitching uh, in at the beginning of any fantasy season. Manea and Duffy are two good ones. Um, there's no sure things, but then again, there's not many sure things in pitching these days, and particularly this past year. Yeah, and that's exactly it. And especially if you're playing in deeper leagues where the uh, pickings get thinner at the end of the draft, you have to take some gambles. There's just no way to win without cashing a cashing a winning bet on a low price guy who ends up being a pretty useful starting pitcher in, in the big leagues. Because as you said, it's also real easy to place a big bet on a guy like David Price or Chris Sale or even Clayton Kershaw this year, who for one reason or another, all three of these guys probably are going to end up being disappointing for for fantasy owners who spent first or second round picks or 25 to 30 dollars on them none of them are going to come close to delivering yep it was a very tough year this year in fact i've got my uh, wife's uh uh, fantasy roster up right uh, now she had uh, garrett richards sonny gray danny salazar um, you name it all of them on all of them good pitchers entering the year all of them on the dl that's what happens uh Jock, I really appreciate you helping us out again with the American League for one last time. It's been a real pleasure to have you all season long. We're going to be taking a few weeks off. We'll be back probably around pitchers and catchers in 2017. And frankly, I can't wait to talk to you again at that time. Back at you, PD. Always fun talking with you. We'll see you next year. Jock Thompson is BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis and Speculator Columnist, and he covers player news from the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. We'll have a quick break here, and we'll be right back with Joe Sheehan next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, I'm Ray Murphy, Co-General Manager at BaseballHQ.com. I'm inviting you to join me at First Pitch Arizona, November 3rd through 6th in Scottsdale. It's three days jam-packed with seminars, scouting reports, workshops, and fantasy drafts. And best of all, First Pitch Arizona is three great days just talking baseball with hundreds of serious fantasy players like you and all of the top industry experts. And don't forget the ball games. First Pitch Arizona is your chance to scout 2017's impact rookies from your own front row seat. To get the details and to register, Visit BaseballHQ.com and click on the giant First Pitch Arizona logo on the right side of the homepage. First Pitch Arizona. Come see for yourself why the fantasy baseball winners who attend every year call it the most fun you can have outside of draft day. 
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated, a great guest for our show. Joe, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, Patrick. Good talking to you again. Before we get started talking about the meat and potatoes of this call, uh, how are your fantasy teams doing? Uh, great. They're both 2-0. and Oh, you probably mean my baseball teams. Is there something else? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I just, I, I'm just not a good Roto player. I've been you know, trying to play Roto for 20-something years. I'm not a good Roto player. I'm 14th in a local 15-team league. Uh, guys you might know, Corey Schwartz, Steve Cosolino, Nando DeFino, guys like that in the league. Uh, just not very good. I, I am uh, in contention in two score sheet leagues, though, and I've really come around to loving the format of score sheets, so I tend to do better in that. But, uh, yeah, two for two. One team's going to win gonna, uh, win its division. The other one is in, if you can believe this, a three-way tie at 500 uh, to lead a division. So it's uh, it's pretty fun. And are you a Stratomatic guy? I am, actually. Um, I don't play as much as I used to, but I played in the, one of those uh, Stratomatic Daily Leagues earlier this year, and I made the playoffs. Uh, I get the cards every year, and I used to play tournaments a lot. I've only played one this year. Uh, but that Strat's probably, I mean, I go back to 1981 with Strat, and Strat's a big part of the reason I ended up doing what I do. But uh, I don't play as much as I used to, but I still love the game. Just out of curiosity, did you ever play those card-based game that Sports Illustrated had out? It was under their brand. I don't think they really had anything to do with it, but it was a set of cards, maybe 36 cards or so for hitters and pitchers, and they were all Hall of Famers. And you could either deal them out and make your make your best team out of them, or you could draft them. And uh, I remember that if you got the Babe Ruth card, you won every time because he was un- unstoppable. That I don't remember. I remember the, uh, I mean, Strat had a Hall of Fame set that I never played, but then uh, the, what I remember with SI was the Avalon Hill games, and I played a couple of those over the years. Never as much as I played Strat, but uh, I played some Avalon Hill baseball when I was in uh, grade school. You know, I remember Avalon Hill, but I remember them more as uh, like war theater sims that you could play with those hexagonal maps or maps with hexagonal superimpositions, and then you had all these little cards with tank battalions and infantry battalions and so forth. Uh, I had a lot of those games. Yeah, I didn't know about those. I just but they had baseball, football. But my friend and I played baseball. We actually played the boxing game. I remember playing one game with boxing, and I think I won with Max Greb. <laughs> that was the only time we ever played it. Well, if you if you've if you've won a bout with Max Greb, that's an excellent time to stop playing. I'd say, <laughs> Joe. As we speak, the Yankees, who, who appeared to be in a tear it down and rebuild it mode, are instead battling for well, not so much a division title anymore, I expect, but they're in the wild card chase for sure. You wrote about this amazing story in your Joe Sheehan baseball newsletter. How are the Yankees doing it? You know, after they traded, uh, excuse me, after they traded a uh, Chapman and Miller and a Beltron, uh, they ended up, the, the players who were left behind just started playing really well. You look at the power performance they got in August. Um, some of that was Gary Sanchez, who's been, of course, one of the best stories in baseball. But the Yankees ended up hitting 50 homers in the 35 games, the first 35 games after the trades, and uh, that was a big part of their offense. Uh, they slugged 445 for the month, and that's you know really far above what they'd done for the first four months of the season. The other issue is the bullpen. Even though they traded away Chapman and... Uh, and Miller, the bullpen actually pitched very well. If you look at what they got out of Clip, uh, Tyler Clippard and uh, Adam Warren, it basically replaced the innings that Chapman and Miller had been giving them. So kind of underline the point that, you know, relievers are fungible, and you can kind of swap them in and out. You're not always going to match performance, but it's certainly the easiest thing to replace. 
Yeah, you made that point in the uh, in the newsletter piece, and I thought it was well made in that we tend to maybe overestimate the uh, power or utility to a team of having like absolutely A-plus grade relievers like the Yankees had with those three guys. Then they trade two of them, and yeah, it's a little step down in talent, but at the same time, they pitch so infrequently, and they're still pretty good. I mean, most pitchers in the big leagues are pretty good, that it's not the same thing as losing a, a starting pitcher or a full-time position player. No, particularly when you're doing it late August. You're talking about replacing 15 to 20 innings over the course of two months. And, well, maybe a, when you, you know, two guys is 30 to 40 innings and so on. Uh, and when you look at the limited uh, workloads and you look at the limited skill sets it takes to be an effective major league reliever now, um, you're, you're being asked to throw 20 pitches three times a week. And it's just not hard to find guys who have a good fastball, maybe you know a decent breaking ball, and they have the endurance to do that. It's you know All of these guys' uh, skills tend to play up when you put them in the bullpen. I was thinking last night Joe Blanton was pitching for the Dodgers, and Joe Blanton was basically falling out of the league as a starter. And now he's had two good years out of the bullpen, and you know we've seen this with dozens and dozens of guys. So it's just not that hard to, to find live arms for the bullpen. And if you're going to... Essentially, you you never tank your season by trading away relievers. Relievers can always be replaced. So I think a big part of the reason there's a perception that the Yankees tanked their season, but all they really did was trade two relievers and a DH. And uh, you know that's not it's not like they they traded you know David Price at the trade deadline. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point of view. Of course, the same thing can be said about the relievers that you have in your fantasy league. Unless, of course, saves are in the equation, as they are in most uh, rotisserie form, as then it does matter. But other than that, uh, Ron Chandler figured out years ago with the Lima plan that there's a lot of relievers out there who will give you a a sufficient number of good innings that they're not going to kill you. And really, when you're talking about bullpen performance, what you're looking for is guys who won't kill you. Yeah, and and there are plenty of guys out there right now. And when Ron developed the Lima plan, it was actually, you know, uh, at a time when, you know, the relievers were not even less common than they are today uh and if you can't if you want to punt saves and you just want to draft skills it's not that hard to go out and find a bunch of relievers who are going to strike out you're going to have a strikeout rate of 28 30 percent and a whip somewhere around one it's just not that hard to build that kind of bullpen and then talking about when you talk about a draft you're doing it in the the 20s and higher if you're talking about an auction you're getting a bunch of guys for two dollars and less and you can still build a bullpen that's going to help your ratios My friend Matt Beagle, who used to be the American League analyst here at Baseball HQ Radio, said one of the things he really liked about Stratomatic, as opposed to other forms of fantasy baseball, was that you could take those kind of pitchers, good skilled pitchers, and put them in as closers, even though they weren't actually closing games in the big leagues. And subsequently, uh, I, I understand that they changed that a bit, that you can adopt a set of rules that does give more credit for saves in the big leagues as far as the card is concerned. But a lot of leagues still play that it's just guys who get strikeouts and don't walk guys and are effective relievers you can just say okay he's not a closer for the Tampa Bay Rays or whatever but he's got good skills I'm running him in there as my closer and we'll just let the the dice decide yeah I I go back to that Uh, I was playing strat before they put the quote closer rule in in part because I was playing strat before closers were a thing Um, and I want to say it was the 88 or 89 set that they kind of develop this this these closer rules and they're very clunky uh they're they're really counterintuitive and how they they put them in the game but they do affect gameplay in that if you have a great reliever who never got any saves you're at a disadvantage if you're using those rules as opposed to as bad notes you know what you could have done in 1985 which is take any reliever who had good numbers and put them there in the ninth inning so it was an attempt 
to, because remember, Strat's entire modus operandi is to mimic major league stats. They want to mimic the game, and you, they weren't getting that with save totals. You weren't seeing people who have to use, you know, a bad closer card, you know, Jay Howell or somebody like that, uh, in a closer role. So they weren't they weren't mimicking save totals. The advent of the closer uh, rule in Strat was an attempt to better match save totals. You touched on this, Joe. I've heard some and read some analysis in the media and some of my Yankee fan friends that the Yankees fighting their way back into contention means they should have postponed this rebuild. They should have hung on to Chapman. They should have hung on to Miller, et cetera, et cetera. You've heard the same thing as your piece says, but you say the Yankees did exactly the right thing. I think you're correct, but explain why. Absolutely. I mean, this is a team that needed to do something like this for, for quite some time. Um, and I would have said this even before we saw the return that they got. If you look at the trades that they made, you know, particularly the two, the two reliever trades, they got so much value in return. Two top 25 prospects and then, you know, a lot of depth prospects. You know, getting the fourth pick in last year's draft for Carlos Beltran, you know, Dylan Tate. Dylan Tate's not having a very good year, but just on the pedigree alone. Uh, you know, the fourth pick in the draft, I think you got to go out and make that trade. So the value that they got certainly justifies the, 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 the fire sale. But you know, the Yankees have been middling around in this 80 to 85 win range uh, for so long now. They, they've had to, they've got to get off that treadmill. It's the worst place to, play, to be as a baseball team. Uh, and it's a credit to Joe Girardi that they're still going to probably finish over 500 and finish with that handful of games on a playoff spot. But, you know, it's, it's, Time for them to look forward by saying, hey, look, we're going to trade some talent, improve the talent base in the organization, and try to be a championship team in 2017-2018 is a far, far better way to go. You uh, mentioned Gary Sanchez briefly. I don't know if you've touched on this in the newsletter. I suspect not because I read the newsletter and I haven't seen it. Uh, Gary Sanchez is getting some Rookie of the Year buzz on the other side of the coin as far as that goes. People saying he only played six weeks or whatever it's going to end up being, uh, or not even that, but he's played such a short period of time. Even if he hits 20 home runs in that time, he doesn't qualify as the Rookie of the Year just because he didn't play enough. What, what do you think? Well, I think it's relative to the, to the pool. And when you've got Michael Fulmer out there, who's going to end up with 155 innings or so, and he's pitched well enough to deserve the award. I'm not sure Sanchez can catch him. I think I can probably make a case for Sanchez being in my top three. You've got uh, Max Kepler and some other guys who will be in the mix. Uh, well, I, I just don't think Sanchez can catch uh, catch Fulmer when it comes to value. If he'd, I, I don't know. We'll see how the last two weeks play out. Um, and you make an argument for, you know, you make it less of a war type framework and you say you know this guy was spectacular and he didn't control his own playing time it's not like he got injured he just didn't get called up till august i'm maybe getting some extra credit there but i think my sense right now is i'm going to have fulmer at the top of my ballot and somebody told me that gary sanchez could be the rookie of the year this year and next year 130 uh, at bats i think is the threshold i don't think he'll stay under that uh i would i would be surprised if he stayed under that you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, Sports Illustrated. And Joe, a month or so ago, you wrote a newsletter piece about stolen bases, and you pointed out that no team since 1972 has stolen fewer than 20 bases in one season, and the Orioles are likely to do that this year. As we speak, they're still short of 20 stolen bases as a team, and even if they finish a bag or two above 21-22, something like that, they'll still be a team with one of the lowest totals stolen bases for a team in history. What does the Orioles' unwillingness to run say about the possible futures of the running game? Well, there's certainly the canary in the coal mine for an industry that has stopped stealing bases. Uh, I 
remember at the start of the year, there was a big article about Vince Coleman. He basically said, oh, the base runners are just too scared, and these stat heads don't. And, and some people will blame you know, stat heads because stat heads don't like to steal bases because the, the numbers don't really work out on it. I think it's just that pitchers and catchers have gotten really, really good at stopping the running game. Uh, between slide steps, between you know the, the way that catchers are basically picked now for their defense, mostly framing, but also their, their throwing skills, uh, it, we measure success in hundreds of a, of, of a second. Uh, we clock pop times for catchers to hundreds of a second. It's, what is it, 13 steps from first base to second base for a base stealer. And we've gotten to a point now where pitchers and catchers are so incredibly efficient getting the ball from the pitcher to the catcher to the middle infielder that it's become very hard to steal bases. Uh, and that's to me, that's the biggest change. It's the It's the way the defense has learned how to stop stolen bases. So... Uh, yeah, I think the, the Orioles are an extreme example, but to me, they're playing to their personnel. Uh, Manny Machado stole a bunch of bases last year. I remember having this conversation, uh, certainly at first pitch Arizona last year, about how much would Machado steal. And he, at least at last I checked, he hadn't even attempted a steal this year. Uh, it's That was a surprise, but I think that's Buck Showalter saying, hey, look, that's not who we are. We have power at nine spots in the lineup, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to try 250 home runs and make the playoffs. Uh, the Cardinals are another team that hasn't run very much this year. And it's the same thing. It's just if you don't have the personnel, why force it? Uh, teams are very good right, good now about just saying, hey, look, if we don't have the ability to steal bases, we're not going to. And the other side of that coin, as you mentioned, is a lot of teams follow the Earl Weaver dictum where, you know, you don't want to give away any outs when you've got five guys or six guys in the lineup who can hit a home run at practically any at-bat. And certainly the Orioles have that, as do some other teams. But there are teams at the far end of the spectrum who don't hit for power very well at all. They should be getting more stolen bases. Have you noticed that? Well, and the Brewers are running a lot. Uh, and that's just, again, it's a personnel. They picked up Jonathan VR before the year was uh, before, uh season and that certainly drove it i think a lot of these teams that are stealing bases are you know it's really one or two guys who are, who are driving the bus and they can break that math that we're talking about they're fast enough that they can get from first to second and beat the pitchers and catchers and uh i just think there are fewer and fewer players that can do that reliably uh and as i say you know we we you talk about the old weaver thing we talk about saber metrics uh that we know that the value of of getting caught stealing in most cases is going to, you, know, you basically, you have to be safe 70% of the time, and that's in the broad strokes. There are situations where you have to be safe 85% of the time. And this gets back to the change in the game, Patrick. You know, I wrote about this, gosh, two years ago now. Um, with singles on the decline, we're going to hit fewer singles this year than we ever have before. And singles as a percentage of outcomes are going to be lower than they ever have before. If singles are, are minimized, the value of going from first base to second base is... Is, is far less than it was, say, 20, 25 years ago. Same thing with sacrifice bunts. You don't want to trade it out for a base if the guy on second base is just going to watch two strikeouts or he's going to trot home on a home run. So all of these one-run strategies that we talk about, are the, the value of them has been lessened because of the shape of, of the game today. With singles out of play, with strikeouts up, the value of going from first to second is just so much less than it used to be. 
I wonder if these things also kind of travel in cycles that for a while the stolen base was perceived at least by teams as a problem against which they had to defend. And so they started working really hard on defending against it, as you mentioned, by teaching pitchers to be in greater control of the guy standing at first base, by teaching catchers or picking catchers who are able to get the ball out of their glove, good pop time down to second, accurate to second, and they, and these kind of um, positions get applied across baseball because everybody wants to stop the running game. When the running game is effectively stopped, are they going to start picking pitchers and catchers for other reasons, and will we see a resurgence in three years' time or five years' time? I don't think so because, to me, the biggest difference is velocity. The, the, the biggest change from pitcher to catcher to second base is the speed at which the pitcher gets the ball to home plate. Uh, pitching steals were ascendant in the 1970s and 1980s when you know, pitchers were averaging, I don't know what they averaged, we didn't have data from back then, but they weren't, the average fastball now is 92 miles an hour. And when you think about it, I want to go back to that hundredths of a second concept. And we've shaved hundredths of a second off this because pitchers now, instead of throwing 87, throw 92. And I think as long as pitching, as long as velocity uh, continues to rise, that's going to be the biggest reason. You've just shaved a couple of hundredths of seconds off that pitcher to catcher to middle infielder time that makes it, it changes the, the math of trying to steal a base. That's the, the biggest factor to me, and that's why uh, stolen bases are probably going to continue. If not decline, uh, we're not going to go back and see a league that steals 3,000 bases uh, anytime soon. That's going to have some pretty important fantasy implications. Uh, either leagues are going to have to adjust the importance of stolen bases or remove it as a category altogether or find some other way to assess or value base running skills. First to third takes the place of just steals or something like that. But if we stay with just steals as a category, what does this mean about how the steals are going to be distributed? We've already seen a... Uh, tendency for fewer players to get more of the bags as a percentage of all the bags that are available. If that continues, are we going to find ourselves in a position where there's 10 guys who are worth having on your roster at all for fantasy purposes in the stolen base category and all the rest of them are down at, you know, two or three? Yeah, it just ends up being something you pick up accidentally. Uh, or you get the surprise guy like Machado last year stealing 20-odd bases. Uh, it's really... It's something, because this game was developed, as I say, in an environment where I think the National League stole 1,600, 1,700 bases, and uh, it's far under that now. And I could be getting these numbers wrong. I'm just thinking back to when the last time I looked at them. But you know, the rotisserie certainly was developed at a time when stolen bases were a critical category. And now they're almost, you know, aside from the 10 guys who steal 40 bases, are uh, at random almost. And I do wonder about the influence that... Uh, that steals have on our our roto based games uh, or even points games. It's it, it ends up being a disproportionate issue because everybody's chasing the same handful of guys. And whereas power is everywhere, um, I saw a number like 206 guys have 10 home runs this year. Uh, I think 100 guys have 20 home runs this year. You can get power in a lot of different places. Um, steals steals guys guys who run are disproportionately valuable. I do think it it queers the game a bit if we're trying to ape baseball, but we're paying. $38 for Billy Hamilton or you know, 37 for Jonathan VR. I think that queers the game a little bit. Um, I could see rotisserie develop in a way that uh, minimizes the, the impact of stolen bases. And we'll have to, it, it's hard because I'm not sure what you'd replace it with. I, I did hear a good argument once that by including steals, you're kind of, in the same reason that you do batting average instead of OBP, you're trying to pick guys who have different skill sets and kind of broaden that out. But um, that argument's just slowly being lost as steals lose their value in Major League Baseball. It's in the same, well, I think we're going to talk about this later, but I do think that uh, 
playing time distribution, roster construction, and the the stolen base issue are two of the big issues big issues that rotisserie faces. Yeah, when I look at the at the path that the stolen base is going, it just looks to me like it's going to be saves all over again. We already have a lot of people who've, whose leagues have tried to figure out ways to de-emphasize the importance of the so-called closer by adding in holds and, and those kind of steps that people take. But we're rapidly moving to a place where you're going to have maybe – 25 guys in the in all of baseball who are capable of stealing enough bases to be valuable in the category roughly the same number of, of pitchers that we have who get a significant number of saves and nobody seems to like that so maybe it'll work out a, as you say well uh, with relievers at least you're talking about guys who have comparable skill sets and the usage patterns are which of course we don't control as players you know you want to say hey look we don't want to put everything on who manager x decides to use in the ninth inning versus the eighth inning they're the same pitcher, just you know, it's just usage patterns. I think steals are different in that you're talking about you know entire industry that's moving away from doing this. And again, you know, it's I, there were as I say, steals are down by two thirds from when the guys got together at that French restaurant and said, "Hey, let's invent a baseball game." Uh, I think it's something we're going to have to address. You mentioned uh, a moment ago the uh, question of catchers framing strikes and i know you it's a favorite topic of yours and earlier this month you wrote about it in the newsletter the inability of home plate umpires to call balls and strikes correctly and before we talk about this i want to be clear you're not saying that the problem is that that umpire or this umpire or that group of umpires can't call balls and strikes while that group can but that the task they are being given is fundamentally impossible for any human being can you explain what you mean by that I mean that baseballs are moving uh, at 93, 4, 5, 100 miles per hour through an imaginary box, imaginary three-dimensional box. Uh, they're moving usually, in, you know, they're cutting or diving or right. Well, they're not rising, but you know, moving left or right or down. Uh, if they're in that imaginary box, they're in it for about six thousandths of a second, and there's not a human eye in the world that can actually call those call that effectively. Now, human eyes were the best technology for this for up until, you know, 10 years ago. But now we have better technology. We have these divide, these, these systems that track the position of the baseball, wherever it is on the field. And to me, there's no reason not to use those to call balls and strikes at this point, because there are a number of reasons to do this. One is because umpires are just guessing. They're just flat out guessing on close pitches. And they're influenced by any number of things, one of which is what the catcher does after the ball crosses the plate. And if you look at the rule book, two point, rule 2.00 says the, the strike zone is or what happens when the ball crosses the plate. And we know, watch an inning of baseball, and you know that umpires are calling the pitch based not on what it, where it crosses the plate, but what the catcher does. It's fundamentally unfair to the hitter because the hitter doesn't have that information. The hitter... The umpire is making the call based on information the hitter cannot possibly have because it happens after he makes the decision. So I'm just fundamentally, I think it's, I think allowing this catch framing, you know, catcher framing issue, which, you know, I respect the research. I'm not questioning those guys, but I have a problem with that being worth so much, a skill that fans can't see, a skill that, quite frankly, nobody can see. If you've ever looked at any pitch framing content, it all uses like stop motion and kind of slowed down things to show the catcher movement. And uh, I, I just don't feel like that should be worth as much as, you know, what Andrew Elton Simmons does in a year. 
So I, I don't like it from that standpoint. I don't like it from the gameplay standpoint. I don't think it's fair to the hitters. I just think it's a huge hole in the game that's being exploited. The strike zone is defined. If we want to define the strike zone as what a strike is, whatever the umpire says it is, fine. Let's change the rules. But right now, the umpires are badly distorting baseball with the way they call balls and strikes. And we have the technology to fix it, and we should. I've had this argument with other people, and the example that I like to point to is tennis, where for a long time it was just the linesman, it's in or it's out, and John McEnroe screams and shouts about it, or Serena Williams threatens to kill somebody, or however that works out. But in fact, they realized that a person sitting right on the line, and it's a two-dimensional thing, is it on one side of the line or the other, or is it uh, the correct depth? And for the person calling the line, it's really one-dimensional. Is it in or is it out? And it hits the ground before you have to decide, and they still get it wrong often enough that they impose technology on the system. And then you further complicate matters. As you said, you have a virtual box. It's five-sided, and it's different for everybody. It's different for Aaron Judge than it is for Jose Altuve because it's knees to shoulders. I agree with you entirely. I don't think any human being is ever going to be able to do this. And then the other argument we hear is that, well, even when you get some leakage of the of the statistics about how good or bad the umpires are, they're getting 90% of the calls right, and that should be good enough. And again, I say, well, baseball itself realized that 90% of the calls on fair foul, tagged out at second or not, were insufficiently accurate, so they went to the technology to get it right. And it turns out that they're wrong an awful lot of the times on tag plays. And if they're 90% right on balls and strikes, as you say, there's a lot more balls and strikes to call. It's about time that we figure out some way of making that work. And, and even if they're 90% wrong on balls and strikes, the, the calls that they're missing are, are really screwing up games. I mean, I'll, again, watch a single inning of baseball, and you'll see a call on a 1-1 pitch that flips a count. And the difference between 2-1 and 1-2 is enormous, just absolutely enormous. And umpires are, are moving that value all of the time, and they're getting it wrong. They're doing it wrong a lot of the time. I, I, come, I think that on balance, I think the whole pitch framing thing favors pitchers. Uh, I think bad umpiring tends to favor pitchers in today's game, and that has always been the case. I think that in the late 1990s, uh, umpires, the de facto called strike zone was incredibly small. And it's gone the other way now. It's incredibly large. Uh, so I think on balance, it favors pitchers today. It's incredibly frustrating. You know, I'll watch a hitter do his job. There'll be a 2-2 pitch that's not a strike. He correctly takes it because he can't hit it. He can't put it in play with authority. He takes it, and it gets called a strike. I don't, I don't like that. I, I think it's fundamentally unfair to a hitter to have him do his job properly and have some middle manager behind the plate, you know, who's – making you know, 60% of what a minimum salaried player is making uh, change the game that way by, getting, by doing his job poorly. And then, of course, you know, if, the, if the player objects, he can be then ejected from the game. So the umpire can make a bad call and then remove from the premises the guy pointing out that he made the bad call. So you know, I would really like technology to take this over. And I understand the argument that the technology isn't going to be perfect either. The, the parallel to tennis, of course, is that tennis is a fixed line on the ground. It's a binary call. And with baseball, you've got to adjust for hitters and stances, and I get all that. But you, the, the new system doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to be better than what we have now, and there's no way that it wouldn't be better than what we have now. I wonder if they started getting a more accurate strike zone, knees to, knees to letters, basically, 
that we might also see a resurgence in the art of hitting singles and therefore stolen bases and base running and that kind of thing would come back into play because if if a hitter knows that a ball that used to be a high ball is now, I, mean, I should say, a, a, a ball at the top of the strike zone is going to be adequately and accurately called every time or that he can wait out a pitch that's below the knees that those below the knees calls are happening all the time. There's pitches away that are called strikes all the time and if they even the playing field in that way, then hitters will once again be able to use the strike zone to hit the ball wherever it's pitched. That will become more important. And as a result, I think singles will uh, would increase in number and, and the other stuff would follow on. I'm, ho- I'm hopeful that that would be a side effect of doing this. I don't think it was going to radically change. But anything that encourages pitchers to throw hittable pitches and batters to swing the bat is a good thing. Right now... Uh, so much of the game, particularly with these relievers that we've been talking about throughout the, 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 the conversation, is about these guys just throwing to the edges and outside the edges of the strike zone and trying either to get the batter to, to flail or the, the umpire to miss a call. And the game is really slows down because of this. It, the strike zone was once, you go back 140 years, and the strike zone was developed as a means to get the pitcher to offer hittable pitches to the batter to put the ball in play. The pitcher's job was more like a softball pitcher back then. When It's a ball-and-play game. The pitcher just starts the action, almost like a center in football, hiking the ball to the quarterback. He starts the action, and then the batter puts the ball in play, and it's a ball-and-play game, and you run, and you catch the ball, and you run the bases. And baseball is essentially the opposite of that now, in part because of the strike zone, because the strike zone's gone from, here's a thing that forces the ball to be in play, to here's a thing that allows you to keep the ball out of play. And if baseball's got one overarching problem right now, it's a lack of balls in play. Yeah, I thought that was a a point well made. And you said also that uh, the pitchers and anybody who watches this on a broadcast that has that little box on the screen that shows you where the pitch was, you very rarely see a ball anywhere inside the box. It's always at the edge of the box or slightly outside the box, as you, as you said. And then the, the batters are flailing at it. And, and anybody who asks the question, well, why did he swing at that? And the answer is because sometimes they get, that gets called a strike. Even though it's not a strike and the batter realizes, you know, he's put into a, a Hobson's choice. Do I take it and maybe risk that it's a, a called strike or do I swing at it and put it in play weekly or, or miss it altogether? It's, you're right. It just puts the batter in an impossible situation a lot of the time when no pitcher puts a ball into the middle of the strike zone or anywhere near it except by mistake. Right, and also, too, I mean, pitchers, and this gets back into the whole velocity issue, and pitchers are just so much better now. Uh, the Batters have, and we're talking about hundreds of a second here, but batters have less time to make that call. And you know, they, they're having to make this decision a little bit earlier, a little bit earlier. There's no co- uh, comparable development for hitters the way there is the reduction of workloads and the increase in velocity for pitchers. So whereas hitters are using more or less the same skill sets they were 30 years ago, pitchers are being used less because they're being used less, they can throw harder. And they've also had the development of things like cutters, which are just you know very, very hard to hit. So all, all of the trends right now are, are against hitters. And I know that you know, runs per game are back up to where they, they were a couple of years ago, but all of that is just home runs. The shape of the game, to me, and, and I'll grant that to each his own, but when essentially you have a two true outcomes game, uh, 30% of the outcomes in baseball now are strikeouts, homers, and walks. And most of those are strikeouts and homers. Walks have had an uptick. But uh, 
thirty percent of the balls in pl- uh, of the plate appearances aren't resulting in a ball a ball in play. That's not what baseball is supposed to look like. And that, to me, you can't fix velocity. You can't tell guys to throw less hard, but you can fix the strike zone and you can use that. That's the one weapon at at the game's disposal that could produce more balls in play. From a fantasy perspective, Joe, assuming Major League Baseball takes its usual path of not doing anything, how might fantasy owners be able to exploit the status quo with regard to strike zones and pitch framing? I mean, uh, if you trust the pitch framing data, which I think you have to at this point, I think you've got to fold that into your, your pitcher projections. You've got to look for the, the pitchers the, the pitchers on teams that have the better pitch framers. Uh and and uh, and maybe add a dollar to those guys or add a round to those guys. If you're kind of deciding between two breakout candidates, the one who's going coming up to a team with a good pitch framer is going to be your better option. I think that um, as much as I wish it weren't so, clearly this data is is reliable, and uh, that's that's going to be the one way you can exploit it. I haven't figured out a way to exploit it from an offensive standpoint yet, but I do think that you know you just want to lean towards pitchers who are in those good situations. Uh, you know, get, Take Dodger pitchers because they have Yasmani Grandal as opposed to, uh, I guess it's from memory, Jared Saltomaki is a really bad framer. I know there are others, but he's the first one that pops into mind. So avoid uh, Tigers or wherever he ends up next year. Um, but you have to, it's not going to be the, the it's not going to be a five-round thing or a five-dollar thing, but on the margins, lean towards those teams with those catchers. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated. And Joe, a moment ago you mentioned how the changing philosophies in baseball are also going to affect or should affect roster mixes as far as fantasy is concerned. We've seen significant changes how Major League Baseball teams structure their rosters. As you said, we're seeing more specialist short-run pitchers and fewer substitute position players. In general, why do you think this happened and how has it affected the game? Well, it's just teams started using pitchers for fewer innings, fewer innings per start, fewer innings per relief appearance. The, the trend accelerated after the strike. Uh, you look at the league leaders in starts, or excuse me, the league leaders in innings pitched. Those have gone from the 270s to the 250s to the 230s. I think we're going we're, we're on pace to have the fewest 200 inning pitchers in baseball than we've ever had before this year. Uh, be, I think it was 23 a couple of years ago. It'll be under 20, possibly under 20 this year. Uh, and then you look at relievers had the same trend. Relievers went from being... I, <clears throat> I did a project where I researched... I literally went through every box score of Jack Morris's career. Every, Actually, every box score for every team that Morris had played for. I did this 12 years ago. It was fascinating, Patrick, just because... I, li- I mean, I remember the 80s, but, I mean, you know, I, I followed baseball, but whether it's just because it wasn't that unusual then or I just didn't notice, when you go back through the 80s, you see things like a starter will go on inning and two-thirds, get pulled... And then, like, Aurelio Lopez will come in and throw seven innings. It was just such a radically different model for using pitchers than what we see today. It was just fascinating to go through an entire decade of baseball and look at this. Anyway, I mention this because that would blow somebody's mind today to see a reliever come in and throw seven innings. Uh, we just don't ask that of relievers. We don't even ask two innings out of relievers anymore. The average relief appearance now is one inning. Um, so... If you're going to do that, if you're going to ask less of individual pitchers, you have to have more of them on the roster. When uh, 1979, 1980, when Daniel Lokrent and his buddies got together, uh, <clears throat> the typical roster was 16-9, 15-10. There were the occasional 17-8s, uh, by, by, by which I mean hitter-pitcher splits. And now everybody's at 13-12, some are at 12-13. Thir- Occasionally you'll see 
a team carry 11 position players and 14 pitchers for a game. And you can usually know that because you'll hear me screaming. Uh, it's, it, it's bad. I think it's bad for the game. Um, but for fantasy, it's had an enormous impact because there's just fewer player, there's fewer, there's less playing time in the pool. The other parallel to this is the teams make roster moves every single day now. So for the sake of argument, let's say everybody's at 13-12, which is in a national league that's 15 times 13, was that 195? It's 195 position players, but it's not really, because in any given week, 40 of those are going to be churned. They're not useful for fantasy. So we're trying to build 14-man rosters, and we actually don't have enough... There are not enough playing roster spots, usable roster spots, in a single-season league, a single-team league, a single-league fantasy league, an only league, to fill out our, our league. Now, the last few times I played... Uh, I haven't played Tout Wars in a couple of years, but I said to uh, the, the powers that be in Tout, I said, you can't... I think I might even wrote a, a newsletter about this. You have to change the rules because the 14-9 model doesn't work. We carry more position players than the teams do. Um, and Tout eventually went to 13-9 with a swing. You could use it as a pitcher or a hitter. Um, and I even wonder if 13 position players is too many in an only league now. As again, there just isn't enough playing time to go around because teams are distributing their playing time in a different way and they're churning their roster in a way that isn't helpful for fantasy players. And again, you know, like stolen bases, this is the thing that, you know, fantasy baseball wasn't built for, but you have to adjust to because there's just not enough playing time out there. Um, I think the swing is, is an interesting idea. I just, I, you almost have to go to thirteen ten. I think it makes a less fun game. But if you're playing in an, this doesn't affect mixed leagues. I'm talking about only leagues here. But if you're in an only league, I don't think you can have fourteen man position player rosters. The playing time just won't uh, justify it. And the other side of that coin is that there's so many more pitchers that people can can and do feel much more free about uh, gambling on pitchers at the draft, uh, tilting their roster dollars more towards hitters than to pitchers because they'll just load up the bottom half of their pitching staff with $1 gambles and just, speaking of churn, just go through one free agent pitcher after another until you finally land one who does something useful and carry on that way. It, it seems to distort every part of the game from the draft outward. Uh, you said you think 13-10. I've actually written that I think it should be 12 hitters, 11 pitchers with uh, two catchers, four outfielders, and one bonus infielder other than instead of corner and middle. Because I think that more accurately reflects the rosters I see when I look at a, at a big league roster. In proportion, it's, that's about right. And forcing a team to add a couple extra pitchers would dig deeper into that pool as well. Uh, you say 13-10, I say 12-11. I think both of us could be considered right. But I think we agree 14-9 is, isn't getting the job done. No, and I'll be honest with you, uh, I don't know how much a 12-11 game even interests me. And I, st- I started at the top saying I'm not a very good rotisserie player, and I'm not. But I think about the game a lot. and I just, at that point, I just, I mean, what are you really doing? You're now bolstering the value of all these middle relievers. Now you're chasing, now you're spending $9 on Brian Shaw because he's a reliever who's going to give you 70 innings and not hurt you. Um, I think that would be a very strange game as well. Um, I, you also have to wonder what that does to hitter values at the t- as well with fewer roster spots and I don't know. I just I have memories of of looking at the waiver wire and tout on a Sunday night, and there would be you know sixty five total plate appearances for the entire season on the waiver wire. It just became I'm not saying not fun. Tout was always fun. The people in tout are just amazing, and it was great playing with them. But that aspect of it was incredibly frustrating. And actually, it's one of the things I think that's 
it's one of the reasons mixed leagues have become more popular because the the depth of the league is a little more enjoyable. I think that you know uh, single season leagues, which were always kind of the the non of fantasy, uh, were are uh, th- that's just very hard to play now. And I'm not sure how you fix it, but uh, the 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 evolution of Major League Baseball has not been good for single season fantasy, the single league fantasy leagues. Just a few days ago, Joe, you wrote about, and I'm quoting you, wanting it as a precursor to winning in baseball, and you pointed to the Jays, Giants, and Royals of late to make your case. Quickly run our listeners through what you were saying about this idea that the team that wants it most wins the most. Yeah, well, there was a week you know, a week ago where uh, three really good contenders got swept or lost two out of three to three really bad teams. And you know, there's this idea that you know, if you just want it more, you'll win. And we'll hear, we're going to spend all next month you know, hearing about the team that wants it more, and that's why they won the series. And I think it's insulting to everybody involved because you don't win just because you want it. That's not the way baseball works. Baseball would look a lot different. You wouldn't see good teams get swept by bad teams in September if it was just about desire. Um, it's about skills. And all of these guys at this level have the desire to win. It's insulting to them to say that, oh, well, you know, they wanted it more than you did. No, they didn't. They wanted it just as much as the other guys did, and they just happened to play baseball better for three or five or seven days. So no, I, I, all of the, the soft factor nonsense that gets played up in late in the season in October just drives me absolutely nuts. All of these guys are professionals. All of these guys want to win. And the way the rules are set up, one of them has to lose, or some of them have to lose. And uh, reducing it to just a matter of desire is just, it, it's insulting to everybody. And uh, we're not arguing, I agree with you, this is not a case that players lack the will to win. I mean, there may be a player here or a player there who cares less uh, about it than uh, some other players. We, we know that some guys are super intense and other guys are a little more laissez-faire. But the difference I think that you're getting at, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that baseball is different from prize fighting or, or tennis or some kind of game where it's you against me. And at some point I can look across the, the net and realize you're just never going to give up. You've got that, you know, that fighting spirit or whatever it is. And that, that plays a role in your willingness to keep going. You look across the ring and see Mike Tyson. You know, a lot of times the guys are saying, this guy's a force of nature. I just can't do it, and that that leads you to fold. But as you suggest, in baseball, there's too many moving parts and too many guys using too many different skills for that possibly to be in effect. I'm not gonna. I want to speak about the the way this applies to individual sports. Not really my expertise, uh, but I do think that when you reach the pinnacle of your profession, as these guys all have, you know, they've all demonstrated the will to win. They've all demonstrated the will to be successful, and they're all essentially you know guys who don't have that have been winnowed out by the time you're watching a Major League Baseball game. Um, so there's just not a measurable difference among that. And, you know, we tend to focus on, again, we, we, we retrofit this. We don't look at a game at the start of the game and say, this team has a greater will to win. We decide, based on the final score, which team had the greater win, will to win, which is just this incredibly lazy narrative that dominates sports. So it's, it's retrofitting, uh, the, you know, it's, it's deciding the soft factors based on the final score. And the final score is built on any number of things that have very little to do with the will to win. So, uh, yeah, I just, I'd like to see all of that nonsense get left out because all it is is decided this, this team won, so this is what we're going to write about them. And it doesn't matter which team won. It's just this team won, and we're going to write this about them. Yeah, it's like a template or a computer-generated computer story, right? 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I didn't mean to suggest that the in a prize fight that the guy who wins always had a greater will to win than the other guy. He could have just been more skilled and really didn't care too much, as we see when a guy goes in and fights a tomato can. You know, he knows he's going to win and he doesn't have to work that hard at it. But I can tell you, I remember watching on the big screen closed circuit that they used to have for prize fights, the Tyson versus Leon Spinks fight. And that was after Spinks had beaten Ali. And uh, I'll tell you what, Spinks did not show any kind of will to do anything except get the hell out of there with his head still attached to his shoulders. And I think the fight lasted maybe 19 seconds or something like that. And you could have seen it coming. I'll say that. Uh, last week on the podcast, Joe, Jock Thompson and I were talking about Byron Buxton, who's having or was having at the time a really hot September. We came at it more like a facts and flukes exercise, performance validation, you know, can he keep it up type of question. So let's start there for a few minutes. Do you think Byron Buxton's hot September indicates that he's a, a fantasy asset for the rest of the year and especially for next year? Definitely for the rest of the year. Um, the problem with Buxton has been more that they kept jerking him up and down and out of the lineup and down to Rochester. Uh, I think left alone to his own devices, he'd be a low average uh, hitter, but he'd run bases for you. He hit for some pop. Um, not that the defense is going to matter to you in most formats, but it'd be a good defensive center fielder. Um, and I'm bullish on him for next year. Uh, I'm hopeful that the, the Twins will, even if Molitor sticks around, I'm hoping that they'll change the front office in a way that will stop this nonsense with their young players where they're constantly jerking them up and down and in and out of the lineup. Um, they'll just leave Buxton to his own devices out there. And I think you know Buxton's low end is going to look like a bad Devon White year where the steals and the power are going to be there. He's not going to get on base a whole lot. Uh, and the plus defense. And you know he has upside from that. Uh, and I think the biggest problem that Buxton has right now is just the organization hasn't just let him go and accepted that, you know, he's going to strike out 175 times. Leave him alone. In three years, he'll strike out 140 times. But until you let him get 1,500 bats in the majors, you're not going to see that level of improvement. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer in Buxton. Obviously, you know, there's only a week and a half left in the season and uh, not, a whole, not a lot of useful information in terms of for, for this year. But for next year, I, I think he's going to be a, a, probably a $15 player. You mentioned Byron Buxton's defensive uh, ability. He's certainly a plus-plus outfielder, which is a big help in sim games, of course. But in mainstream fantasy, not so much. Most leagues don't have a defensive component in their scoring. But there are advantages to a guy who can play some D, and that is that he's not so likely to have his job lost if he goes into a little slump like, say, a Sano in, in Minnesota. They can't find a place for him to play, and he's pretty much a terrible defensive player. So if he stops hitting, he's no use to them at all. You And the reason I bring this up is that you argued in a recent newsletter piece that Buxton is as valuable as Mark Trumbo, even if Buxton hadn't had this hot September because of his defense. How'd you arrive at that conclusion? You know, I... <clears throat> I want to make the point here that I, I, I'm not arguing it so much as I'm pointing out that if you look, use baseball references war calculation, the two, and I, I don't have the numbers in front of me today, but at the time they were basically dead even. And this was right as Buxton had come up for about a week and had a, had a hot week. And what it is is it shows you the value to me of using a war construct. And if you don't want to buy into baseball reference war, if you want to use your own, fine. But it looks at everything a player does. And when you look at all of the things a player brings to the table – you recognize that, okay, Mark Trumbo is at 40, what is it, 43 home runs now. And outside of those 43 plate appearances, he just hasn't brought a lot to the table. He's hit 250. He doesn't walk very much. He's only hit, was it, 22, 23 doubles. He's a bad defensive player in the outfield. He's an adequate first baseman. Buxton is a good defense. He plays center field, which is a far more important position. He's a good center fielder when you leave him out there to play. Um, he does. He gets on base even less than Trumbo does, but 
couple extra steals. He doesn't. He avoids double plays, and you know Trumbo loses some value because he gets into double plays. On the margins, all of these things make Buxton a valuable player in a way that Trumbo isn't. So it, it was a surprise to me. Um, and I, if you want to, if you look at a different war construct, you might re- reach a different conclusion. But you're not going to get to a place where Trumbo has been five wins better than Byron Buxton because Byron Buxton does a lot of different things on a baseball field to help you win, and Trumbo does exactly one. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated. And uh, Joe, I'm I'm interested in Sports Illustrated. And before I ask you about a piece you, I saw that you wrote there, I grew up reading Sports Illustrated. I'm fairly confident you did too. How big of a thrill was it the first time you saw your byline in, in that magazine? It, it was big. Um, and Nate Silver, back when we Prospectus, had worked out a deal where he and I would write for the uh, the baseball preview. And I think it was for the 2007, maybe 2008 season. And uh, we did a bunch of content for that. It was it was uh, it was a real thrill. It was uh, I grew up like you, you know, getting SI in the mailbox. And uh, when you think about the people that had written there, it was really truly amazing. It was writing being in the magazine was was incredible. I actually have had two cover lines, um, one in 2009 and uh, one in I want to say 2010. Um, the first of those actually, my girlfriend at the time framed it, and it's still hanging on my wall. So having my name on the cover of Sports Illustrated is. Uh, one of the, the highlights of my career right up there with the first Prospectus book we put out, uh, the first check I ever got from Prospectus, and the first TV hit. Um, being on the cover of Sports Illustrated is just something I'm never going to forget. I bet not. Uh, like I said, I read Sports Illustrated. My dad bought me a subscription for Christmas one year, and I think I maintained that subscription up until my 20s. And then I just, um, you know, at a certain point, get a, a little more... Um, and I started writing for it. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> In your uh, Sports Illustrated piece that I mentioned, you argued that when baseball and softball returned to the Olympics, that Rob Manfred and the Lords of Baseball should figure out a way that Major League players can participate. Why do you feel that way? There's just no global fire hose like the Olympics. Uh, The Olympics have the potential to introduce baseball to audiences that would not ever think of watching it. It also can spur governments to fund baseball programs in countries where baseball would like to reach into. Thinking particularly here of Europe, uh, the Asian subcontinent, thinking here of Africa. Uh, Baseball wants to both find talent in these places and find baseball fans in these places. Those two tend to go hand in hand. Uh, As much as the the World Baseball Classic is, is reasonably popular, it's not going to approach the kind of global reach of the Olympics. And, uh, I think putting uh, putting making the Olympics a priority by letting all of the best baseball players participate in the Olympics is one way to jumpstart that and jumpstart baseball in global markets that baseball doesn't have much penetration. I couldn't agree with this more, and and the reason is I think things like the World Cup of baseball and they're having the World Cup of hockey right now, and they're I think the people who run the NHL are thinking of this as an alternative to going into the Olympics, which interrupts their season, costs the money, and so forth. But, you know, Joe, when I read this piece of yours, the first thing that popped into my mind, and uh, bear with me here, was curling, the uh, mostly Canadian, uh, Scottish, European sport of throwing shuffleboard rocks basically on a sheet of ice. And for a long, long time, curling was just those countries, Canada, the northern U.S., uh, Scotland, Denmark, those kind of countries. Then they put it in the Olympics. And within eight years, 
some of the top teams in the world are now coming from Korea and China. And that's a billion people plus whatever the population of Korea is. Maybe you're talking about a billion too. That's a lot of curlers, and that's great for curling. It's going to, it's going to grow the sport. They've already had a lot of uh, cultural exchanges to bring coaches over, and they're spending money, and they're traveling into our uh, area to, to curl at the highest levels. It's really been good for the sport, and I can't understand why the big league sports don't see it that way. Some of this is my own biases towards team sports, um, but the Winter Olympics, I watch hockey and I watch curling. And I just, I love the tactics of it. And I think that the exposure curling got here in the States uh, during the Winter Olympics has certainly made it more popular here. It's, it's an every four years thing, but I know people have actually gone here in the States. There are places in Chicago that you can go and have a beer and curl and it, uh, or throw, I don't know actually what the verb is, um, but it's, it seems like a blast. It's, it's a participatory, participatory sport, and it's, uh, it's actually fun to watch. I, I really enjoy the way the, the televised program uh, does it. So uh, that, that's the model. Basketball is another model. Olympic basketball has helped to grow basketball around, around the globe. Um, the sports, and I guess we'll call them sports, that we've introduced into the Olympics, uh, the biking and the, the X Games type sports that are, that are now Olympic sports, I think those have, have spread those uh, activities around the world as well. So you're just... Yeah, look, I don't love getting in bed with the IOC. Um, it's just not a good organization. But if you want baseball to get into places that baseball has never been, you're not going to do it through the, the, the World Baseball Classic. You're going to have to you know, get, in, get into the IOC. And the only way the IOC is going to continue having baseball past, I think they've committed for 2020 and 2024, the only way that's going to work is if you send the very best baseball players. We've done it before. One of the reasons that baseball got dropped from the Olympics is because baseball wouldn't send the best players. I think Doug Mankiewicz, as a prospect, got a gold medal. Um, that's not going to fly. If baseball doesn't commit the way hockey's committed, uh, you're not going to see uh, baseball players in the Olympics. Well, as I said, the NHL is now talking about not going to the Olympics next uh, time there's a Winter Olympic Games because the games run in February. You're just starting to sort of spool up for the stretch run towards the playoffs in the NHL, although practically everybody gets into the playoffs, so it's not that big a deal. But it definitely takes a slice out of their season. You know, two weeks out of 25 or whatever it is is a good-sized chunk of your revenue that you either have to close your rink or you have to keep putting your team out there without Sidney Crosby and without Ryan Getzlaff and these guys. and Clearly, baseball's ownership is worried about that, that they, they are facing the possibility um, this year they'd have had to stop the, stop the game for two weeks in August, and that's getting towards the pennant run. Yeah, and this is the argument against it. I fully understand it. And baseball doesn't have the luxury of hockey where you can just extend the season. I mean, granted, I know that there's issues sometimes with the ice when you're playing the Stanley Cup Finals in June. I understand that. But fundamentally, there's no weather restrictions on pushing the season back, whereas baseball's already stretched. And... My argument is you just you, you play 154 or 144 game season, and you do it because this is not something baseball's ever really been good at. But you take a short term hit so that you can have the long term value of growing the game for billions of people who wouldn't watch baseball otherwise. And like I say, once a sport is in the Olympics, you tend to see the national Olympic committees get involved. You tend to see. I think that China's been in the WBC. Um, but I do think that having the Olympics would help to grow baseball in places like China. And look, there are political issues with getting involved with China, but there's no question that every single business in the world wants access to 1.1 billion potential uh, customers. So I think the Olympics are baseball's fastest way to get that. You mentioned the season length, Joe, and uh, 
I have a solution for Major League Baseball to shorten the season by four weeks. Mandatory Saturday doubleheaders. You know, I used to be on the doubleheader kick too, Patrick. And um, the problem I have is that we remember doubleheaders from a time when baseball games took two and a half hours, two and a half, two forty-five. Now games take three, three fifteen. That's an extra hour at the ballpark. And you know, when it's one to seven, okay. Now it's one to eight, or it's you know four thirty to. 11 now it's 4 30 to midnight i i i think that it, it those of us who talk about double headers do it from a position of being 12 years old and watching two and a half hour baseball games and frankly not caring if we got home or not and now i just don't think that we're just not that kind of nation i as it is you've got people complaining about you know whether baseball games are three fifteen versus three hours. I think if you turn a, ba- a day at the ballpark into an eight hour thing, you're just not going to see the level of demand. I guess you could make them day night doubleheaders. Right. I don't know that that works on Saturday if you're going to play a day game on Sunday. I think the players would have a legitimate gripe being at getting at getting to the ballpark at eleven a.m. on Saturday and playing until midnight and then having to be back at the ballpark at eleven a.m. on Sunday. I think you're going to run to a lot of resistance there. You probably are, but a little bit of salesmanship could point out to the players and the union, especially uh, acting as their representative. Hey, you get home a month earlier at the end. Well, some guys do, um, but I, yeah, you know, I've said I think there's just too much. In it. I think 162 game season is was ne- baseball was never designed to be played over 183 days. I guess would be my point. Um, and I think I think your point to shortening the the footprint is actually a good one. I would do it by reducing. I, I've offer, I said the 132-game season is, I think, the natural length of a baseball season. Now, there are, are a number of reasons for this. One is the weather on both ends of the calendar. Remember, there used to be a lot more doubleheaders, as you point out, and now with doubleheaders out, you're playing 162 games over 183 days. Baseball was never meant to be played over 183 days. You have the, the, the postseason that used to be one week and is now four weeks. You have uh, the NFL sucking up a lot of oxygen beginning in September. So baseball's in competition with, frankly, what's a more popular sport right now. So a lot of September gets lost. And really my biggest thing is the playoffs. It used to be that we cared about regular season results. If you won your division, that was a good season. If you won your pennant, that was a good season. Now, we don't remember who wins the division. We don't remember things like that. We just care about the postseason. So I don't think if you're going to put this much emphasis on the postseason, which we have over the last 20 years, and I don't think that's going to change. I'm not sure why we're playing 162 games to eliminate 10 to eliminate two thirds of the league. I think you can, if division titles aren't going to be the most important thing in baseball, then you can play 132 games to get there. I that that's my biggest argument. I think that you're never the regular season doesn't mean as much as it used to. So let's not play 162 games. Well, I'm just waiting until somebody at the union looks at the playoff situation and says, you know what, we've got players here who are getting paid $100,000 a game during the regular season who are getting paid $100,000 for this entire period. Maybe we need to rewrite how these players are paid for the postseason because that's the big attraction to the owners is that they get all of this high-caliber, much-viewed action without ever having to really pay for it beyond what they put into the pension fund and so on. Well, no, the players do get paid. They're, they get paid for the first, the first three or the uh, best of five, the first four games of a postseason series, um, uh, of a best of seven series. So the players are getting play, paid in the postseason. That money can really add up. So there is, they're not just paying free. Spring training, they're playing for free. 
And, you know, spring training is now 32 games long, plus, you know, three weeks before games. I think, if anything, players are going to want to shorten that because that's just pure profit for the, for the ownership groups. But the playoffs, the, the players are actually end up getting paid. Not at the rate they do in the regular season, but they are getting paid. Well, and a lot of that money is earmarked for the organization, for the for the MLBPA to plug into pension funds and so forth. And certainly, the top stars are getting um, are going out there and playing in these very high intensity, very important games for much less than they're being paid for this increasingly meaningless regular season, as you say. So, I think there's an imbalance there. And if the players ever decide to press it and start asking for a bigger share of the playoff revenue, I wonder if the owners would come around. That's all. I think it's something that could come up in a future CBA. I don't think it'll be on the table now, but we'll see where you know the, the emphasis on the playoff goes between now and the next CBA negotiation. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Gavitt, with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated. And Joe, wrapping up, uh, I'd like to talk to you about the 2017 draft. As you know, ordinarily we get studs and duds for the rest of the year, but in this case, the rest of the year is a week, so it's not not much point of doing it. But I'm wondering if you were drafting a 2017 team in a 15-team mixed draft and you knew you had one of the top five picks, how would you stack the top five players for next year based on what uh, if the draft were to be held this weekend? Well, I, I think the the great winter discussion is going to be Trout versus Betts. Uh, Trout started stealing more this year, um, but Betts is going to have better uh, numbers across the board. I think he's done more than uh, value in fantasy this year. I think that's going to be a really interesting conversation going into next year. I'd probably go Trout-Betts, but I can't say I'm doing it with any conviction. After that, I'm looking at uh, Paul Goldschmidt, uh, Jose Altuve, you know, are the 24 homers for real? Is he going to go back to being a 12 to 15 homer guy? I think that's a question with him. And then, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys to be the number five. Uh, Nolan Arenado has really looks like a 41-30 guy now. And when you, you know, the advantages that he has playing in Colorado, you know, don't, that'll affect his track car, but not going to affect us. So I think you're looking at Trout, Betts, Goldschmidt, Altuve, Arenado uh, as my top five. That's a good top five. Uh, I'm going to argue to put Altuve, I'm going to give Altuve a, a little more consideration for the top slot just because of the stolen base angle. A guy who's going to get you 45, given the stolen base environment that we talked about at the top of this podcast, makes him, I think, uh, gives him a little added value if he can maintain the power, as you say. Who's a hitter and a pitcher you think will be overdrafted in 2017 based on this year? Well, you know, we mentioned him earlier, right? You know, Mark Trumbo is essentially, you know, his home run to fly ball rate is spiked, and other than that, it's a typical Mark Trumbo season. He's going to get a lot of attention. He'll probably get, my guess, he's going to get one or two straight actual MVP votes, and he'll finish high in the balloting because of the perception that he was important to this Orioles team. He's going to be in the news a lot this winter because he's going to sign a big free agent contract. Uh, I think that everything uh, leads to him being an overvalued fantasy player next year. Um, on the pitching side, I, I think he's going to be a good pitcher, but. I suspect that Kyle Hendricks is going to be paid for his, you know, 2.0 ERA this year or next year, and that's not realistic. If you look at his fielding independent numbers, he's basically the same pitcher he's been the last couple of years. He's a good three starter, and I think he's going to get paid like a high number two or a number one. When I say paid, I'm sorry, uh, valued as such next year. So I look at Trumbo and Hendricks as guys that be a little bit uh, overvalued. On the flip side of the coin, every year has some players who underperform, and that leads them to be undervalued or underdrafted in the subsequent year. Who's a hitter and a pitcher that fall into that category for you? I'm probably going to be high man on Addison Russell again. Um, he's been good this year, 21 homers. I might even drive in 100 runs, but he you know, didn't run. He only hit 250. 
I think the batting average is going to take a big jump next year. He just the skills are there for him to be a two eighty, two ninety, three hundred hitter. I talked about him in the context of Barry Larkin, and at the age that <clears throat> Russell is now, Larkin was just reaching the major leagues. Um, so he's ahead of Larkin. I think there's a lot of offensive development ahead of him. I differ from a lot of people in that I do tend to value. I still tend to value positional scarcity. Um, guys who can play shortstop are just that much more important to me. I'll take, you know, uh, I'll still value that a lot. Even in an era where middle infielders are hitting a ton, I, well, we got the record for a second baseman hitting home runs this year. Um, but I'll still take a, a middle infielder over a corner guy. So I think Russell is going to be, for me, uh, uh, I was going to say top five rounds, so it would make him what, a top 75 guy. And maybe that's even uh, a little bit low, maybe even a top four rounds guy in a mixed league. So top 60 guy for me. Oh, and uh, a pitcher. Uh, guessing pitchers from year to year, but um, I don't know. I, I, I've been low man on uh, Masahiro Tanaka for a few years now, and uh, I, I wonder if because of the constant threat that his elbow's going to go, he gets undervalued, but he just keeps going out there and hangs big years. I don't know if we'll go into next year thinking he's going to get hurt or we'll go into next year seeing him as you know a top-five starter in the American League, um, but he's somebody I'm looking at as where there could be some potential value. And finally, Joe, some breakouts, a favorite hitter and pitcher you think are going to really explode in 2017. A couple of guys who, who, who come to mind who could break out next year. You look at uh, the White Sox with Tim Anderson. I don't think he's a great baseball player, but as a fantasy player, this is somebody who's probably going to be a 2020 guy. Um, he's going to play. He's going to probably bat high in the lineup, so where even his low OBP is going to produce a, a ton of runs scored. I think he's somebody whose fantasy value is going to exceed his uh his real-life value. And then over the National League, he's probably going to get a lot of hype going into the year, but you look at Tyler Glass now coming up with an organization that's done a very good job with pitchers. Because he didn't pitch in the majors much this year, he won't have stats to build on. I almost think that because the Pirates haven't played very well, like he'll be a little bit forgotten going into next year. Um, in, leagues that aren't, in leagues that aren't quite so competitive, you'll probably have managers who can't tell the difference between Tyon and Glasnow. And to me, Glasnow is a step ahead of Tyon. So you kind of get some, oh, well, they're the same guy. They're not. To me, Tyler Glasnow right next year could probably be a $12, $15 pitcher. Joe, this has been tremendous as always. Tell our listeners where they can keep up with Joe Sheehan. Uh, best place is always Twitter, at Joe underscore Sheehan. It's where I post radio hits, obviously a lot of commentary on the game. Um, I take questions there. I also, uh, you know, anything I'm doing media-wise, anything I'm doing in SI will be there. You can also get information on the newsletter by going to my Twitter feed. Um, you can go check out on Facebook, uh, Sheehan Newsletter at Facebook. Again, it's a place where I take a lot of questions. I post excerpts from the newsletter. Uh, JoeSheehan.com is not a site that's been updated very often, but you can also get in, uh, newsletter information there. Uh, and, you know, listen to podcasts. Um, I'm always on this podcast. I do Will Leach's podcast. I was on the Effectively Wild podcast a couple, a couple weeks back. Um, I just love getting out there and talking baseball. So um, if you're listening to this, you like baseball, follow me on Twitter, ask a question, we'll talk baseball. Fantastic, Joe. Thanks a million for helping us out again. Uh, it's always a pleasure talking with you, and uh, really insti- I'm still a number one fan of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. Thanks, Patrick. Take care. Joe Sheehan writes for the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated. And if you're serious about baseball, Joe's newsletter is must-reading. We have our Baseball HQ commentaries coming up, but first we've been talking about the 2017 season here on this edition of Baseball HQ Radio. And again, if you're a serious fantasy baseball owner, you've already started planning ahead. 
And if so, you'll want to jumpstart your 2017 planning by ordering two great books from the fantasy experts at BaseballHQ.com. Get to the front of the line for Ron Chandler's baseball forecaster and the minor league baseball analyst when those books are printed and ready to be sent out. 2017 marks the 31st year of Ron Chandler's baseball forecaster and it's full of player projections, trends, reliability grades, injury analysis, research essays, cheat sheets, and the encyclopedia of fanalytics. And the minor league baseball analysts combine scouting and sabermetrics in more than a thousand prospect profiles with performance trends, exclusive HQ potential ratings, major league equivalents of minor league and college stats, commentaries, a complete sabermetric glossary, and a listing of affiliates, and much more. That's not all. If you order direct from BaseballHQ.com, you'll get some neat bonuses. Start with PDF versions of the books you order. With your forecaster order, you'll also get Excel versions of the charts and projections and updated projections just in time for next season's draft. With your minor league baseball analyst order, you'll get updated organization reports and the updated top 50 prospects list. Get your order in now. The forecaster has a special price of just $22.95 plus shipping and handling and it ships in early December. The Minor League Baseball Analyst is all yours for just $17.95 plus shipping and handling and it will ship in mid-January. These great books, these special prices and all these extra bonus materials can be yours but only if you order directly through BaseballHQ.com books. So don't wait. Go today to BaseballHQ.com books and order now. Time for our regular Friday Baseball HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and a special guest edition of Master Notes. And leading off, it's our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at last-ditch pickups in Oakland and San Diego. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. At this point in the season, with just about a week left, it's a complete crapshoot as to who's going to get hot the rest of the way. So if you're still in the hunt, and as a loyal Baseball HQ Radio listener, I'm sure you still are, you need to be targeting anybody with regular playing time at this point. In Oakland, for example, a guy named Joey Wendell has taken over near everyday playing time at second base. Wendell posted solid numbers this season at AAA Nashville, but nothing spectacular, with a 279 batting average, 12 home runs and 14 steals. Wendell's caught fire in Oakland, however, with a 306 average so far in September. Wendell's also chipped in a pair of bags and a homer as well, so while his long-term upside isn't very high, we gave Wendell a middling 7C prospect rating when he was called up. It appears Wendell's catching lightning in a bottle at the right time and could be a valuable chip up the middle. And in San Diego, there's a late youth movement going on as the Padres called up top prospects Manny Margot, Hunter Renfro, and Carlos Asuaje all received the call earlier this week. San Diego figures to give their youngsters a cup of coffee to round out the season, and there's potentially fantasy value to be had if you're in a pinch, depending on your categories. Renfro offers the most power upside of the three as he hit 30 home runs with a 557 slugging percentage at AAA El Paso this season. Margo's your best bet for speed in the outfield with 30 stolen bases and a 351 on base percentage in El Paso. And finally, Aswahe might be the most polished hitter and polished all-around player in the short term. He's hitting an impressive 321 with a 378 on base with pretty solid plate skills in AAA. 
All three of Hunter Renfro, Manny Margot, and Carlos Asuaje are probably gone in your keeper dynasty formats, particularly Margot, who ranked 26th on our midseason top 50 list, and Renfro, who slotted in at 41. But with just over a one-week sample, any of these guys, the San Diego Trio or Joey Wendell, could perform like first-round picks just by playing every day and getting hot at the right time. Not saying it will happen, but it wouldn't be crazy if they did. It's the last week of the season and anything goes. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com who has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for our Frequent Flyers comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns this year and especially next. This week's Frequent Flyers are Milwaukee third baseman Hernan Perez and St. Louis starting pitcher Luke Weaver, and here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. As we close out the 2016 regular season, please allow us to take this opportunity to thank you, the listener, for hopefully taking a few of our flyers on long shots in 2016. We hope that a few of these long shots have paid off very well for you this season. But preparation for 2017 is already underway at BaseballHQ.com. So in this final edition of Frequent Flyers for the 2016 regular season, let's look at two players, a hitter and a pitcher, who may offer excellent values for your team in 2017, beginning with Milwaukee's Hernan Perez, who was called up on April 28th and since been 272 with 13 home runs in 114 games for the Brewers in 2016. More importantly... Hernan Perez has played at least one game at every position in 2016, except pitcher and catcher, by playing five games at first, 11 games at second, 59 games at third, three games at short, and 39 games in the outfield. Hernan Perez will likely qualify at both middle infield and corner infield slots, as well as in the outfield in 2017. Now, are you ready? Let's take a pop quiz. Who currently has a higher batting average as of Friday, September 23rd, Houston's Carlos Correa or Milwaukee's Erdogan Perez? It's a trick question. As of Friday, September 23rd, both are batting 272. Ready? Here's another one. Who currently has more stolen bases in 2016, Houston's Jose Altuve or Milwaukee's Erdogan Perez? We'll give you a hint. Altuve currently has 27 steals. Give up? Hernan Perez is one of only six players to steal more than 30 bases so far in 2016. Just to clarify, are we saying that you should draft Hernan Perez ahead of Carlos Correa or Jose Altuve in 2017? Absolutely not. Don't do that. After all, given his career 254 batting average, Hernan Perez, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are available to you in 2017. Even so, Hernan Perez, with 31 stolen bases, a statistically scouted speed index of 136, could be a possible premium player in 2017. Speaking of potential premium players in 2017, 23-year-old St. Louis starter Luke Weaver is likely to be undervalued in 2017 because of his 1-4 record as 4.54 ERA in 8 starts for the Cardinals, but his skills certainly deserve a closer look. 
after making his Major League debut on August 13, 2016 against the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field, Luke Weaver has recorded at least six strikeouts in four of his eight starts. In fact, Luke Weaver's dominance rate of 11.1 strikeouts per nine is well above the seven strikeouts per nine rate considered to be elite, according to BaseballHQ.com. Plus, Luke Weaver's control rate of 2.8 walks per nine and his command or strikeouts to walk ratio of four also places among baseball's best pitchers despite the small sample size, according to BaseballHQ.com. Yet something doesn't quite add up. How can Luke Weaver exhibit elite skills but still have a 4.54 ERA through eight games in 2016? Maybe the answer is highlighted in the discrepancy between Luke Weaver's 4.54 ERA in 2016 and his actual 3.52 X ERA, or expected ERA, in 2016. In other words, could the one run per game equivalent between Luke Weaver's 4.54 ERA as 3.52 X ERA in 2016 be an indicator of a possible positive trend in 2017? After all, Luke Weaver's 379 batting average on balls in play, or hit rate, would seem to support the notion that his 454 ERA in 2016 is artificially inflated. Plus, despite making only eight starts, Luke Weaver has earned a base performance value, or BPV, of 134. In comparison, in 31 starts, San Francisco's Johnny Cueto has earned a base performance value of only 121. Once again, please do not draft Luke Weaver ahead of Johnny Cueto based on higher BPV after only eight starts. We're not, absolutely not, recommending that for you in 2017. However, we are recommending that you consider adding both Hernan Perez and Luke Weaver, our final frequent flyers for the 2016 regular season. Good luck with the rest of the season, and here's hoping that we'll see you at First Pitch Arizona in November. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. We rate matchups on a scale centered on zero. Pitchers rated plus one or higher are strong bets for you to start, while those under minus one are strong bets to sit. In between the ones, well, you'll have to gauge that based on your own risk tolerance. We have a look at four weekend matchups, including an interleague battle of possible 2017 breakouts, with Arizona left-hander Robbie Ray visiting Baltimore to face right-hander Kevin Gosman. Telling you more, here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. In our final look at weekend matchups for the 2016 season, we'll continue our tour of younger arms to target, or not, for your 2017 teams. And if your league has its final fab this week, consider bidding on some of these starting pitchers as potential keepers or hot stove trade chips. Five of our eight starters will be covered here for the first time this season. Three have risk-reward wildcard matchup ratings, and five have recommended sit matchup ratings. But as we said last week, we're looking more at next year than this one game. We won't even mind if teams fiddle with their rotations. We can still start our lists for 2017. We'll begin in the American League on Saturday, going to the Twins' basically neutral target field as the Seattle Mariners come to town. Then we'll look in on both days of an interleague matchup between the Arizona Diamondbacks and the barely-hanging-on Orioles at Baltimore's hitter-friendly Camden Yards. And we'll close it all out on Sunday with the National League East Division champion Washington Nationals visiting Pittsburgh's pitcher-friendly PNC Park to face the Pirates. 
The Mariners acquired 27-year-old left-hander Ariel Miranda from Baltimore in exchange for Wade Miley at the July 31 non-waiver trade deadline this season. Miranda has a minus 100 matchup rating for his Saturday outing in Minneapolis. After seven years in Cuba, Miranda made his Major League debut out of the bullpen for the O's July 3 against Seattle and must have impressed. His next appearance was a start for the Mariners August 4th. Since then, eight of his nine outings with Seattle have been starts. Our minor league analysts graded Miranda a 6C prospect, giving him a 50% probability of reaching his ceiling as a number 5 starter. In 49 major league innings pitched thus far, his surface stats are more impressive than his underlying base performance indicators. Miranda's whip of 117 is due to his fortunate hit rate of 24% and belies his control rate of 3.1 walks per 9 innings pitch, with below average first pitch strike rates and swinging strike rates. His earned run average of 388 is about a run lower than his expected ERA of 485. With a base performance value of 52, Miranda should be low on your AL only or deep mixed league lists. When we reviewed Minnesota's 25-year-old Tyler Duffy on July 15, he had a recommended sit matchup rating, and that's what he has again, this time at minus 119. But on September 19, BaseballHQ.com's starting pitcher buyer's guide columnist Stephen Nickran wrote that, quote, Duffy's skills have been sneaky good. 7.7 strikeouts per nine dominance rate, 2.3 walks per nine control rate, 48% ground ball rate, 104 BPV. He's been victimized by a 35% hit rate, 61% strand rate, and 19% home run per fly ball rate. Finding a way to stifle the power of right-handed bats will help him turn his skills into stats, unquote. Still, Duffy has a whip of 152, an expected ERA of 416, and a roto value of minus $14. In 24 starts, he has a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 25% dominant to 42% disaster. If Duffy's on your list, it should be as a late round or low-cost flyer. Next, we'll pair up both pitchers on each team for the Saturday and Sunday contests of our interleague matchup this weekend. First, the visiting Diamondbacks. Arizona sends out 24-year-old Southpaw Robbie Ray on Saturday with the highest matchup rating of those we're analyzing this weekend at 0.53. If you're not keeping up with your reading at BaseballHQ.com, you probably won't be wondering whether Ray is a 2017 breakout target. The news tab on his BaseballHQ.com player page contains a total of 19 entries from four different analysts this year alone. The pros include a base performance value of 137, a dominance rate of 11.4 strikeouts per nine, a swinging strike rate of 12%, a ground ball rate of 46%, a fastball velocity over 94 miles per hour, and improvement against right-handed hitters. The cons include a whip of 143, a control rate of 3.4 walks per nine, a decreasing first pitch strike rate down to 54%, and an ERA of 466. At first glance, one might hope that Ray's hit rate of 37% suggests his expected ERA of 350 could be realized soon with just league average luck. But Patrick Davitt's deep dive in a facts and fluke spotlight revealed Ray's real problem, too much hard contact. His hit rate is not just bad luck. It's a result of falling behind hitters and then, if he doesn't walk them, throwing pitches into parts of the strike zone that are ripe for hard hit balls. To break out, Ray would have to harness his electric stuff to induce weak contact with more strikes and more strikes that are hard to hit, not hit hard. The questions are whether he's able to do that, and if so, will it come on quickly like a switch being flipped, or will it be a slow roller coaster ride? Keep Ray on your radar, but be careful not to overrate him. <coughs> 
On the starboard side Sunday for the Diamondbacks, 24-year-old Southern Oregonian Braden Shipley has a recommended sit matchup rating of minus 125. Shipley was ranked number 67 in the preseason Baseball HQ 100 list of top prospects, earning an 8C rating. That means our analysts gave Shipley a 50% probability of reaching his ceiling as a number 2 or number 3 starter. Shipley has good command of his mid-90s fastball, an outstanding mid-80s changeup, and an improving 12-6 curveball. He'll get to 180 innings pitched total between AAA and Arizona with this start, and Shipley is showing some signs of fatigue. In nine starts since his call-up July 25, he has a PQS dominant-to-disaster ratio of 11% dominant to 56% disaster, allowing two earned runs or fewer in six innings pitched or more four times, but giving up four earned runs or more in four innings pitched or fewer five times. He's one to watch in spring training, especially since his spring training is in the same city as his home park. The Orioles' 23-year-old right-hander Dylan Bundy brings in a matchup rating of minus 024 to Saturday's game, and one must strain to see signs of improvement since our last look at him August 26. After 22 relief appearances to begin this season following three years lost to injury, Bundy has made 13 unimpressive starts. His PQS dominant-to-disaster ratio is 8% dominant to 46% disaster. Since his lone PQS-dominant fourth start, he has five PQS disasters in his past nine outings, averaging a PQS score of 1.3. He's particularly faded in his past three efforts, yielding 13 earned runs in 14 innings pitched. BaseballHQ.com's Stephen Nickran noted Bundy's increased dominance rate of 9.7 strikeouts per nine innings, but a simultaneous increase in his control rate up to four walks per nine innings actually lowered Bundy's command ratio to 2.4 strikeouts per walk. Still, our minor league analysts gave Bundy a 9C rating, which means a 50% probability of reaching his ceiling as a number one starter. For his 13 starts and one relief appearance in the second half, Bundy has a whip of 136, an expected ERA of 435, and a base performance value of 80. He's made it through 105 healthy innings, though, and that may be the most important statistic of all. Bundy certainly has the potential to either build up or break out, but he also has the potential to break down. Don't think of him as a post-hype sleeper. Instead, expect Bundy to be overvalued in your drafts. If Dylan Bunny doesn't look like the budding ace for Baltimore, 25-year-old right-hander Kevin Gosman appears ready for the role. Gosman has a matchup rating of 045 for this Sunday's interleague outing, and he's been on a real roll since we last reviewed his work June 3 and September 2. His monthly BPVs range from 99 to 126, with a 119 for the first half and a 118 for the second half. His first pitch strike rate of 57% is still below league average, and his whip of 127 is too high to be elite. But Gosman has increased his innings pitched over 2015 by by more than 50% to 166, and his batter's face per game over 2015 by more than 25% to 28. Gosman is showing both stamina and skill, so he should be a mid-range target for 2017. We'll wrap up the year with our National League tilt in Pittsburgh on Sunday, featuring two 24-year-old rookies facing off with recommended sit matchup ratings. Washington rookie righty A.J. Cole goes for the visitors, and he has a matchup rating of minus 114. Our minor league analysts rated Cole a 7A prospect, giving him a 90% probability of reaching his ceiling as a number three starter. Pressed into service after first Joe Ross and then Steven Strasburg were unable to take the ball, A.J. Cole has responded well. In 33 innings pitched over six starts, he has 34 strikeouts and 11 walks, a whip of 126, and an expected ERA of 455. 
producing a BPV of 97. With a home run per fly ball ratio of 13% and a home run per nine innings pitched ratio of 1.9, Cole must improve his ground ball to fly ball ratio of 32% ground balls to 56% fly balls if he's going to take the next step. Of course, it's a risk to assume that improvement will be close to linear, but even if he's not a breakout candidate, A.J. Cole appears poised for continued growth. Pirates southpaw Stephen Brault has the worst matchup rating we'll see this weekend at minus 132. Brault comes with a prospect rating of 7C from the BaseballHQ.com minor league analysts, meaning they give him a 50% probability of reaching his ceiling as a number 4 starter. In 384 innings pitched over four minor league seasons, Brault has a whip of 108, an ERA of 251, and a command ratio of 3.5 strikeouts per walk. In 32 innings pitched over seven major league starts, Brault has walked 14 and struck out 26 on a woeful first pitch strike rate of 49%. His whip is 167 and his expected ERA is 501. It's a small sample, his hit rate is 36%, and his BPV is 47, but it would be a large surprise if Brault made more than a few spot starts for Pittsburgh in 2017. So, looking ahead to next season's keeper lists and draft targets, you can add Kevin Gosman to the mid-level and A.J. Cole to the lower half. For American League only and deeper mixed leagues, consider adding Ariel Miranda and Tyler Duffy. Your sleeper list should include Robbie Ray and put Braden Shipley on your spring training watch list. But you can expect Dylan Bunny to be overvalued and you can safely ignore Stephen Brault. Thanks for listening this year and please introduce yourself to me if you come to First Pitch Arizona in November. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a Baseball HQ analyst and has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And here to say goodbye to an old friend is a longtime friend of the podcast and of mine personally, from MastersBall.com guest commentator Lore Michaels. As I have written often, the Dodgers were my baseball team as a kid. I did grow up in Northern California, where the Giants had only played in San Francisco for a couple of years in 1959, when baseball caught my eye. It was the year the Dodgers beat the White Sox, although that did not have nearly as much to do with my identification with the team as did my notion to be different. Not that I meant to be contrary. I just always gravitated towards the underdog slash other side of whatever. Since everyone else in my universe was a Giants fan, I took a fair amount of guff from my brother and his friends, and even my friends, because I preferred Willie Davis and Maury Wills to Willie Mays and Jim Davenport. So, as a picked-on little brother, the smallest of the pack, I found my childhood consolation with music, movies, books, and then baseball, and the Dodgers were the leader of that pack. The NL was a tight consortium in those days, with just eight teams, all loaded with one star or another. The Reds had Frank Robinson, the Pirates Clemente, the Cubs Banks, the Cardinals Musial, the Braves Aaron and Matthews, for example. And that meant any time we went to see a game, there were stars abounding. But the Dodgers, with Koufax and Drysdale, were so special to me during a time that was particularly tough all over, for the 60s were indeed that time of unrest, and they were also the years of my formative schooling. But they were also the years, from 1963 to 1969, that I suffered the most from Crohn's disease. So, those things 
Books like The Catcher in the Rye, movies like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, songs like Please Please Me, and The Bums Having a Good Day, were all of importance that was magnified to, say, a 12-year-old. Many was the night I went to sleep, adjusting the clock radio that sat on my night table, pulling in a scratchy KFI, the Los Angeles flagship station that carried the Dodgers. And it was there I heard Vin Scully and his partner Jerry Doggett wax on about Union 76 oil and Farmer John's sausages between vague innings. I remember the pain of the Dodgers' collapse in 1962 and the blitz of the Yankees in 1963, the victory over the Twins in 65, and the thumping handed over by the Orioles in 1966 when girls and hippiedom entered my universe. Of course, the common denominator of the Dodgers at the end of their days in Brooklyn, to their first days at Chavez Ravine, to the days of Lopes, Garvey, Russell, and Say in the infield, to the present is Scully, who is indeed retiring this season at the age of 88, following 67 years of tracking Dodger blue. A few years back, when I was still chasing stats for MLB.com, I was walking out of the press dining room at AT&T when I spotted Scully, perfectly attired in a blue flannel sport coat with charcoal gray slacks. He was leaning against a wall outside the door that led to the Dodgers radio room, talking on a cell phone. I had actually seen Scully in the dining room before games for a number of years, often sharing meals with my friends David Feldman and Michael Duca, who were official scorers. But I was always too shy to ever want to crash their table and pay any respects. But with a good 40 minutes before first pitch and the voice of the Dodgers right there, I waited till Vinny's call was finished. I approached Scully somewhat shyly, and he looked up, and I told him just how important his voice and that team was to a sick kid struggling to make sense of an increasingly crazy world. How I lived as a sole Dodger fan in the midst of Giants fanatics, and that I tuned him on my radio every night to make me feel some kind of connection to something on the planet. Vinny looked me right in the eye as I blurted out these incidentals to him as I rambled on for a minute or so and then sighed and the voice of the Dodgers graciously took my hand and shook it and thanked me for sharing all these details with him, finishing with, it's stories like these that validate my years of work. It was all kind of surreal, the best voice in baseball thanking me for simply listening to and acknowledging him. It certainly made my day and is one of those moments I will treasure in my memories always. Thank you, Vinny, for being an anchor to a distraught kid during many years of uncertainty and then validating the same kid grown up 50 years later with your kind words. I will miss your voice and spirit, but do enjoy your well-deserved retirement. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Lar Michaels of MastersBall.com. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September 23rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 45, the final show of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball regular season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition, Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated, a terrific baseball writer and a favored friend of the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. Our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. And our Special Master Notes commentator was Lore Michaels. 
I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. As I said, this was the last show of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball regular season. We'll be back a few times between now and the new year, so keep your eyes peeled for news of another podcast at BaseballHQ.com, on our Facebook page or Twitter feeds, through email from that BaseballHQRadio at gmail.com address, and when you refresh your iTunes podcast page. We expect to be back in full rotation again next season, starting about when pitchers and catchers report, and carrying on all season, bringing you the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners, Baseball HQ Radio. Enjoy the playoffs, look into those Baseball HQ book offers, stay well and healthy, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.